From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Wherever you may be in the world's time zones, each and every one covered like a blanket by this program, Coast to Coast AM, the largest program of its type in the world. I'm Art Bell, and it's great to be here, an honor and a privilege to be escorting you through the weekend. The webcam photograph tonight, one that I shot a couple of hours ago, and that was, uh, that's our little sweetheart, Dolly, with my little sweetheart, trying to eat her hair. <laughs> um, so, it's Sunday, going into Monday, and not good news in California. A gasoline tanker crashed and burned, uh, burst into flames, burned the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge on Sunday, and it created so much heat that a whole stretch of the highway virtually melted and collapsed. Officials predicted a traffic nightmare for Bay Area commuters for weeks or months to come. Flames were 200 feet in the air. But get this, a truck's driver walked away from the scene with second-degree burns. No other injuries reported. It occurred at 3.45 in the morning. Officials said it could have been much deadlier had it occurred at a busier time. A man driving a dead woman's car shot a police officer, then opened fire in a parking lot in a mall Sunday, according to authorities, by the end of the day, four people, including that gunman, dead. The chaos ended when police shot the gunman to death outside a Target store inside Ward Parkway Center in South Kansas City. And again, just in case you were curious, uh, many of us have said, you know, these kinds of mass shootings are on the increase. In fact, statistically, since the 1960s, they certainly are. Iran agreed Sunday to join the U.S. and other countries at a conference on Iraq this week, raising some hopes the government in Tehran would help stabilize its violent neighbor and stem the flow of guns and bombs over the border. In an apparent effort to drive home that point, the prime minister told an Iranian envoy that the persistent violence in Iraq, some of it carried out by the Shiite militias Iran is accused of arming, could spill over into neighboring countries, including those that are supposed to support the Iraq government. The backlash has built up even before the first official release of former CIA Director George Tenet's memoir with criticism about his version of the run-up to the Iraq war. Interrogation techniques and other events questioned. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice on Sunday disputed Tenet's claim that the Bush administration before the U.S.-led invasion in March of 2003 never had a serious debate about whether Iraq posed an imminent threat or whether to tighten existing sanctions. Uh, Prime Minister Olmert is going to face uh, criticism in Jerusalem when a government commission releases its first findings Monday on last year's inconclusive war in Lebanon. Raising pressure on the Israeli leader to step down, leaked sections of findings prompted a new round of resignation calls Sunday from both the opposition and members of Omert's governing coalition. Al Gore condemned Canada's new plan to reduce greenhouse gases. He says it is, quote, a complete and total fraud 
because it lacks any specifics, gives industry a way to actually increase emissions. Under the initiative announced Thursday, Canada um, actually aims to reduce the current level of greenhouse gas emissions 20% by 2020. But the government acknowledged it would not meet its obligations under the Kyoto Protocol, which requires 35 industrialized countries to cut greenhouse gas emissions by just 5% below 1990 levels by 2012. I'm still extremely excited about yesterday's announcement, or the one I read yesterday, I guess I had to say, of the new planet uh, that has been found, the Earth-like planet, a mere 20.5 light years from our very own Earth. All right, all that said, uh, in a moment, we'll be back with some of the rest of the news. We have now lost tens of billions of bees, according to an estimate by the Bee Inspectors of America, a national group that tracks beekeeping so far. No one can say what's causing the bees to become disoriented and fail to return to their hives. We had a video yesterday of some of them just flopping around on a on a parking lot. Um, it, it was pretty hard to watch, actually. As with any great mystery, a number of theories, of course, have been posed. Many seem to researchers to be more science fiction than science. People have blamed genetically modified crops, cell phone towers, high-voltage transmission lines, and lots more. Or even a secret plot by Russia, Osama bin Laden and such, to bring down American agriculture. Or, as some blogs have asserted, the rapture of bees in which God has recalled them to heaven. Actually, I think that was suggested on this program. The volume of theories is totally mind-boggling, according to Diana Fox Foster, a scientist at Pennsylvania State University with Jeffrey S. Pettis and uh, another scientist from the United States Department of Agriculture. Dr. Cox Foster is leading a team of researchers who are trying to find answers to explain colony collapse disorder, the name given for the disappearing bee syndrome. Clearly, there's an urgency to solve this, Dr. Cox Foster said. We're trying to move as quickly as we can. Dr. Fox Foster and fellow scientists who are at a two-day meeting to discuss early findings and future plans with government officials have been focusing on the two most likely suspects, a virus, a fungus, or a pesticide. About 60 researchers from North America sifted the possibilities in a meeting today. Now... This is interesting. Genetic testing at Columbia University has apparently revealed the presence of multiple microorganisms in bees from hives or colonies that are in decline, suggesting that something is weakening their immune system. In fact, the researchers have actually found some fungi in the affected bees that, get this, are also found in humans whose immune systems have been suppressed by AIDS or cancer. That, says Dr. Cox Foster, is extremely unusual. Meanwhile, samples were sent to an agricultural department lab in North Carolina this month to screen for 117 chemicals, particular suspicion falling on a pesticide that France banned out of concern that it may have been decimating bee colonies. Concern is also mounting among public officials. There are so many of our crops that require pollination said Dennis Cardoza, a California Democrat whose district includes the state's central agricultural valley and who also presided last month at a congressional hearing on the bee issue. 
quote, we need an urgent call to arms to try and ascertain what's really going on with the bees and bring as much science as we can possibly bring to bear on the problem. Thus far, colony collapse disorder has now been found in 27 states, according to Bee Alert, Inc. That's a company monitoring the problem. A recent survey of 13 states showed that 26% of beekeepers had lost at least half their bee colonies between September and March. And, of course, you all well know by now the, uh, the quote from Einstein that when the bees go, humans have four years and no more. Stark warnings over the damaging effects of impending climate change were underlined just this last Friday in the fourth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Control Change. Warming of the climate system is unequivocal, as is now evident from observations of increases in global average air and ocean temperatures, widespread melting of snow and ice, and rising global mean sea levels, according to the report Climate Change 2007, the physical science basis. The paper reiterates the body's earlier conclusion that climate change is a consequence of rising atmospheric concentrations of human-made greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. Global atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases have increased markedly as a result of human activities since 1750 and now far exceed pre-industrial level levels. The, uh, the global increase in carbon dioxide concentrations are primarily due to fossil fuel use and land use change, while those of methane and nitrous oxide are primarily due to agriculture. You may have heard a rare, a very rare earthquake shook households in southeast England on Saturday. It toppled chimneys, caused power cuts, and alarmed residents. The tremor, which the British Geological Survey, BGS, said hit 4.3 on the Richter scale. Not much, but if you're in England where the ground is rock solid, it's a lot. Struck just after 8.15 a.m., but left one woman suffering a minor head and neck injury, which did require her going to the hospital. A pilot has reported seeing two UFOs near the island of Guernsey in the UK. The BBC describes them as bright yellow flat disc shapes, at least twice the size of a Boeing 737. Besides being seen by pilot Ray Boyer, the UFOs were also seen by the plane's passengers and by other nearby planes. BBC quotes British UFO researcher John Spencer is saying, quote, these types of sightings have been reported by pilots, generally accepted to be reliable and sensible observers since the 1940s, and they have excited attention to this very day. Such light effects are often popularly uh, thought to represent alien visitors, but to many UFO researchers, well, they believe they more likely represent natural atmospheric phenomena not yet fully understood by science. However... A similar encounter in 1978 over the Bass Straits in Australia, where the pilot was in radio contact with the ground throughout, resulted in the pilot never being heard from again. So these phenomena remain important to be studied. And by the way, guess who has seen a UFO? Actually, several. That would be Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. 
uh, Luckman said uh, Mick Jagger has been very involved with the subject of UFOs now for years. I didn't know that. In 1968, he went camping in Glastonbury when his then-girlfriend singer Marianne Faithful, remember her, and uh, encountered uh, both of them, I guess, a rare, luminous, cigar, cigar-shaped mothership. Around the same time, Mick had a UFO detector installed at his British estate. Isn't that interesting? Then it kept going off whenever he left home, indicating the presence of strong electromagnetic activity in the immediate area. The now 63-year-old singer also sighted a UFO over the crowd during the Rolling Stones' infamous 1969 Altamont concert in California. Mick is not the only member of that band to believe in aliens. The guitarist, Keith Richards, also admitted to, in quotes, seeing a few. Now, this is kind of interesting, and I thought I would relate it to you and uh, and see how you took it. Dr. Laura Schlesinger, you may know her, very popular radio personality who dispenses advice to people who call in on her radio show. Recently, she said that as an observant Orthodox Jew, homosexuality is an abomination according to Leviticus 18.22 and cannot be condoned under any circumstance. The following purports to be an open letter to Dr. Laura penned by an East Coast resident, which was posted on the Internet some time ago. And I think it's a riot. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I've learned a great deal from your show, and I try to share the knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the other specific laws and how to follow them. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, as in Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? I know that I am allowed no contact with a woman while she is in her period of menstrual uncleanliness. Leviticus 15, 19-24. Problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offense. Leviticus 25:44 states, I may indeed possess slaves, both male and female, provided that they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims this applies to Mexico, but not Canadians. Can you clarify, why can I not own a Canadian? <laughs> I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? <laughs> a friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, Leviticus 11.10, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this, please? Leviticus 21.20 states, I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit, I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20, or is there a bit of wiggle room here? Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed. 
including the hair around their temples. Even though this is expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19.27, how should they die? Now, I know Leviticus 11.6.8, that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but may I still play football if I wear gloves? My, my uncle has a farm. He violates 11, uh, Leviticus 19.19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, specifically cotton polyester blends. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Uh, Leviticus uh, 24.10.16. Couldn't we just burn them to death? At a private family affair, like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws, Leviticus 2014. I know you've studied these things extensively, so I'm confident you can help. Thanks again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. A fan named Moishi. <laughs> so, uh, there you have it. Uh, the, the Bible was uh, quite specific, wasn't it? All right, we're going to take some calls, talk to some of you, unscreened, open line calls. Rules are, have something interesting to say. Say it directly and distinctly if possible. But above all, when I answer and say you're on the air, by all means, turn your phone, uh, your phone, your radio off. West of the Rockies, 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 800 800- Eight two five five zero three three. First time callers, area code eight one eight five zero one four seven two one. Wildcard line folk, area code eight one eight five zero one forty one zero nine four one zero nine. And if you're outside the country, no problem. Toll free it is at eight hundred eight nine three zero nine zero three. Let's do it. West of the Rockies, you are on the air. How are you doing uh, this evening, Art? Uh, very well, sir. All right, uh, uh, I'd like to respond a little bit to the uh, statements that you made about Leviticus yes. uh, to, to the individual. It was interesting uh, writing. Uh, let him know, you know, that uh, uh, a lot of things in the Bible are now manifesting themselves today, and I'd rather be on the side of uh, good versus uh, jokes. Uh, but the real reason why I'm calling you is that have you heard of this worldwide movement for justice that is sweeping the planet right now. I I found some information on Google and YouTube, and if you get a chance, go to it and your listeners go to it, because something is in the works, and it's absolutely fantastic, and I think it's going to... Wait, 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 with regard, justice with regard to what? All right, uh, when I I saw this particular piece, it had to do with General Electrics and NBC, and had to do with the 78 million baby boomers and... uh, Everybody else on the planet in terms of boycotting both companies. Uh, in Why? Ter- in, in, in terms of, 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 uh, of this organization that had uh, presented some projects to uh, NBC, and uh, they were basically ripped off. And, and, this, and, and this particular worldwide movement of justice... Wait, 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 just- wait. It's important that we understand. Some organization unnamed presented some projects unnamed to NBC that rejected them. I don't understand. Oh, no, it, 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 was, it was more than that. It seemed that uh, NBC had initiated, uh, from what this particular uh, gentleman was saying on the uh, tape, 
malpractice, uh, fraud, attempted theft, and racism, and general All right, well, that, listen, uh, that's reaching a little bit. I'm sorry. I don't, you know, I'm not going to continue with that because I, I have no idea what this gentleman is talking about, and he's making uh, very specific allegations of a sort that, uh, that I simply can't confirm right now. So I'll see what I can do. You know, I'll take a look. A worldwide push for justice of some kind because of something unnamed. <laughs> anyway, I'll take a look and see what we can find. All right. Unscreened, open line calls. Anything you want to talk about is fair game. And we'll come back and uh, begin to pick more of you from the lineup in a moment. Coming up next hour, Ryan Wood. Ryan will talk about things like why saucers crash. He'll talk about the majestic documents. He's an expert on that, whether they're real or fake. And I'm really interested in why saucers crash. He, uh, he's a crash retrieval kind of guy. Uh, he will talk about several specific crashes. So that you have to look forward to. Coming up next, more of all of you. All right, as promised, here we go. Wildcard line, you are on the air. Oh, great. That's so great. Um, <laughs> yes. All right, I have a short story and then a question for you, Art. Um, all right. All right, on Friday evening, I was riding a bicycle, and um, I have a bike with coaster brakes, and so you need the chain to be on to brake. So I was riding with a group of about 100 people, and we were going down a hill, and uh, my brakes went out mm. while I was uh, going down a rather steep hill, and I started careening, and I had to go into oncoming traffic to avoid all the bikes ahead of me, mm. and I was maybe six inches away from getting decapitated by a side-view mirror. And the rest of the night, it was the strangest sort of spiritual experience I think I've ever had in my life. It felt like I should be dead. Like I was kind of, it was just a very strange spiritual experience. Have you considered the possibility that you were killed? That what? That you were killed. Yes, I did. Right afterwards, actually. (laughs) That was out of the blue. I didn't realize I'd get a yes, but, you know, I wonder if people die in an accident of that kind, whether sometimes they don't realize it for, I don't know, perhaps several days. That's what it felt like. It felt like maybe I was on my way to the hospital or I was in a coma or something, and it was a dream that I had actually lived because it was so close. I mean, I was going 25 down that hill. It was incredible. I have never felt anything like that in my life. If you did, uh, this is definitely one of the most interactive EVPs we've had to date, so we'll save it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm glad you didn't uh, uh, get decapitated by somebody's rear view mirror. Yeah, close calls. Close calls. I wonder about that. I, I really do wonder about that. There are times, many stories I've had, people that, uh, for example, blow a stop sign at an intersection and virtually go through a vehicle uh, which is blasting through a side street. I mean, they actually have a collision, but they don't. They move right through it, kind of like it wasn't really their time yet. And then they get over on the other side of the intersection, pull over, and just sort of contemplate what just happened. First time caller line, you are on the air. Hello. Hi, Art. Hi. How are you today? 
Very well indeed. Where are you, sir? I'm calling you from Phoenix, Arizona. Art, I want to say, first of all, on behalf of many Americans, let me thank you for what you're doing, Art. Your medium, actually, you know, it just reaches out to so many people. It has for me for years and years and years. It is It is a very different kind of program, and uh, I hope it survives me. I hope it uh, survives for a very long time because there's simply nothing like it. Well, I, I, I tell you what, you know, I've been listening to you for years, man. I, I'm a truck driver, and uh, your program has inspired me, and, and I'll continue to listen on. I want to tell you a story. Uh, I, years ago when I lived in El Paso, Texas, I had a really strange experience, and uh, I'll tell you this one will give you the heebie-jeebies. Uh, I lived in an apartment complex, and uh, one night I was coming home from work, and uh, I heard the strangest sound. All of a sudden, things just got really, really quiet, and I heard this tapping, and it really frightened me very, very badly, and I wondered what it was, and this was like in the year of 1984 or something like that. That was about the time that uh, the Alamogordo uh, uh, air base in that area there, and I remember that uh, hearing uh, stories about, you know, UFOs and that kind of thing in that area, and it, it, it sort of scared me, you know? A tapping? What do you mean, just tapping? Well, it, yeah, it was, it was all of a sudden, it, 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 it just seemed like it got really, really quiet. You just really couldn't hear the sound of night at all. Right. And you know how night sounds. There's a certain sound to the, to the nighttime. It was really, like really in the wee hours of the morning, about 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And it was really, really strange. All of a sudden, it was just was tapping in the ground. and, and, and it got Oh, in the ground. Yeah, it, was, it, it felt like it was tapping in the ground. And... and uh, you know, I, got, I kind of got, like, really frightened about it, you know, and I thought, wow, what is this? Well, I'm with you. Uh, ground, uh, ground sounds are really weird. Uh, this area, as well as in New Mexico, uh, we've actually had it here. I had a friend uh, across town. I've told this story previously, a very good friend across town here. And we've had this humming sound, not a tap, but a hum, uh, kind of like the Taos hum going on. And my friend had built a porch, and uh, in doing so, he had sunk a couple of very large, uh, I don't know, two-by-sixes or whatever they are, way into the ground, and it was so bad at night, uh, it disrupted the house and his sleep so badly at night that he actually had to tear the porch down. So I have no idea what we're doing underground in this area or what might be going on in New Mexico, but there's something under our feet moving. It's doing something. I can imagine that our government has all kinds of projects that burrow into the ground at various depths and perhaps parallel at some point. And, and if they're going under you, you're definitely going to feel it. Now, what they're doing down there and why they're doing it, I have not the slightest. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Uh, yes, I was uh, calling to uh, tell you a funny story. Okay, turn your radio off, please. Okay. Always number one. Um, well, basically, um, I had a dream a while back ago about uh, uh, me kind of leaving my body and kind of going down into the earth. It might and not have been a dream. You might have left your body. You know about out of body, right? Yeah, yeah, I sure do. But um, the funny thing about it was that I kind of realized that the earth was a sentient being through the fact that the core is like a molten... You know, core of metal. 
Mm-hmm. And with the huge pressures of it spinning in the solar system, it has like its own intelligence, except it's like a very high level intelligence. I don't think that's an outrageous theory at all. The American natives, as you know, believe that uh, the Earth is a living thing. And uh, it, it does stand to reason that something of this mass may have a, a kind of intelligence that we don't know about. Or maybe it's not an intelligence. Maybe it's what we call Mother Nature. And uh, as I've said many times, Mother Mother Nature doesn't get mad or angry. She simply gets even. So when something gets out of kilter on Earth, the forces of nature tend to take a corrective action. Now, there's no anger or emotion involved in that, uh, as there would be with a living human being. There's simply a corrective balance that's sought. Now, that can have quite devastating results. Wildcard Line, you're on the air. Hi. Art. Yes. I can't believe it. I try to believe it. You. you are on the air. You are uh, my hero. I've, I'm a first-time caller, and uh, I used to listen to you when I threw newspapers about 15 years ago. And uh, I'm very nervous. But um, Well, calm down, take a deep breath, and just try and get it out. I shall. I have uh, sent you several emails, and I understand you probably get more emails than I could ever imagine. But uh, I had an epiphany. On March 25th, um, after a long drive home from Arizona, we went out there for spring break with some friends. And uh, a big part of the epiphany was uh, driving through the Indian nations there and uh, finally seeing it for the uh, sad reality that it is. And and uh, it just led me – and other things occurred during our spring break – which led me to my epiphany, but it, it was funny because at the very end of the trip, we were, we were listening to you, and uh, I, I had thought you'd gone off the air. I had, I had, I'm not throwing papers anymore, and, and I hadn't listened for maybe four or five years, and I, and mm-hmm. I know everything that's happened to you, and, and I'm sure sorry about all that, and I, I, don't, I don't intend to go there, but it was ironic because my children were listening to it, and it was the night you were talking about the dream camp, and my daughter is 17 going to college next year. And she, she said, can I go to dream camp, Dad? And it was just really cute. And um, I, I started talking to her about the children of the light because I always believe that both of my children are very much children of the light. They always have been. They're, they're really, really special, special children. And uh, not only that, but we're surrounded by special people. We live here in, um, well, we live in the mountains in Colorado. I don't want to be too specific, but... Um, well, I might as well. We live in Bailey, where the incident occurred uh, in September, and uh, my daughter was actually friends with with Emily, and even better friends with her brother Casey. And uh, I, I don't know that I should have even went there, but uh, at any rate, we, we uh, I have a vision to um, change the world art by teaching the children. Uh, the ways of the Indians to begin with, and taking life backwards into a simpler time where it, where there was no gray area. Everyone knew their role and and their purpose. And uh, I'm just so excited about it. What I did was I had a powwow on Easter, and I, I desperately tried to contact you before I did it, but it was very successful. And uh, in spite of bad weather and uh, 
and not a, enough timing or, or time to plan on my part. But at any rate, we I had 21 children of the light there. And uh, um, give me one second here. I'm sorry, I had to remove my headphones. And uh, we, are you with me still? I'm listening. Okay, and uh, we, we did a really neat 45-minute powwow where we just talked about real simple values. I have, I've been inspired by God, and I really believe I'm a, a vehicle of, of God. And, and he's given me a very simple philosophy to teach children. And, it, and, and real simply, it's, it starts with one O. And then it goes to two. The one O is one God, and two E's, which is everything and everyone, and then eight S's. Somehow, sometime, something, somewhere, some more, summer. And uh, I'm really all over the place right now. So all right, I forgot all right. I'll tell you what. Hold it right there. I, I'm going to agree with you that our children are our future, and that if we don't uh, eventually go back to some of the original values that we've. Oh, I don't know. They've just sort of worn away, haven't they? Uh, they haven't died a quick death. They've just sort of worn away. We did a whole show on this not very long ago on the on, on what's wrong with our country, what's wrong with the world right now. And I remain convinced that this wonderful technological world that we live in now has succeeded in isolating people to the point where they're not interacting with each other any longer. They're interacting uh, at an arm's length or more. You can now go onto the Internet and write something about somebody without taking any responsibility for what you write at all and put a little handle instead of your name. Not take any responsibility. Communicate across large distances, but not face-to-face. So, I don't know, the world has changed in a lot of uh, somewhat negative ways. And either we move uh, a little bit in the opposite direction, or I think we face a very uncertain future. And certainly, the only way it's going to change is going to be with our children. So he's right about that as well. Wildcard Line, you're on the air. Hello, Art. This is Joe from L.A. It's a pleasure to speak to you again. I just want to pile on another uh, B story to the mounting stories. Sure. Um, July of 2006, myself and some friends were walking along Zuma Beach in Malibu. For those of your listeners that don't know, it's arguably the most famous beach in Malibu. And, uh... What is all that? uh, Excuse me? What is all that? Uh, I have a radio. Hold on Uh, one Okay. Turn turn it down for just the time you're on the air here. And, uh, I apologize for that, Art. Um, and, uh, anyway, I'm highly allergic to bees. I was walking along, uh, Zuma beach and I walked the whole distance of this beach and I see all of these bees just washing out of the water, all of them on their backs, all of the, uh, airs, uh, legs up in the air flailing. Mm. And I'm being conscious of the bees, uh, since I'm allergic and I'll be damned if I wasn't all the way at the end. And I stepped dead on one of the bees on my right big toe. And uh, for a moment, I just started cussing and because uh, I knew what the impending reaction was going to be. Mm-hmm. And nothing happened. The bee was very much alive when it stung me, and absolutely nothing happened. Uh, and we heard nothing about it on the news here in L.A. Nothing was reported locally. Nothing was put in the beach reports. Nothing. And I, and I mean thousands, thousands and thousands of bees washing out of the ocean just in yeah. the surf. 
So uh, anyway, nothing, uh, no questions really. I just want to put that out there, and I'll, I'll listen to you on the radio. Thank you. All right. All right. Thank you very much for the call. Well, I have no idea what to say about this whole B matter, except I suspect Einstein was correct, and they better find an answer pretty soon. I, I don't think that I, I really don't think that I've ever seen a mystery of this magnitude drag on this long. We, we don't really have the answers yet. Many think they might have this answer or that answer, but we still don't know, do we? And one would think with all the little bee autopsies that are going on and all of the uh, intense science uh, being trained on this problem, that we would have some sort of answer by now, but we don't. And I guess we better find out pretty quickly or we're in deep doo-doo. Wildcard Line, you're on the air. Hi. Art. What an yes. honor it is to speak with you, sir. Thank you. I'm calling to you from the great Show Me State of Missouri. It was an honor to have George Norrie here for several weeks. And uh, I wanted to tell you a story. Um, when I was a child, uh, hearing, hearing the story about these UFOs over in Britain um, reminded me of something that I saw when I was a child. Um, my brother, who's a couple years younger than I, and his best friend were all together and happened to be sitting on his front porch. All at the same time, we decided to look up in the air, and we see three lights. And we're like, okay, well, maybe this is an airplane or something of that nature. But they were flying in the form of a triangle. Mm. Well, as soon as they got over us, they came into a straight line, and two of them on the end switched positions. Then they formed a triangle back and zipped off across the horizon. Have you ever heard of anything like that, any type of formation switching with UFOs? Yes. Yes, of course I have. Uh, And the guest we have coming on in this next hour is going to talk exactly uh, about that sort of thing. Of course I've heard of it. We've had, my God, millions of reports uh, of triangles, of uh, things that have been in formation, shifted formation, morphed, done everything you can imagine. Millions of reports of UFOs, and we still can't nail it down. Yes, we just, and then once we finally saw them, um, all three of us looked at each other, kind of like, did you see that? And just to make sure that nobody was messing with the others. And to this day, we can all still recall that night. But it's been a great honor talking to you, sir, and I'll continue on with you. All right, thank you very, very much for the call. You know, the fact that we found this planet 20 and a half light years away from Earth that has Earth-like temperatures, uh, that much they can definitely confirm. They can uh, determine by the distance from the sun and all the rest of it what the temperatures on this Earth-like planet with atmosphere would be. And it's got billions, with a B, billions of years of potential evolution ahead of us. Now... You've seen what we've done in the last hundred years, haven't you? What do you suppose we're going to do in the next billion years, assuming we survive? So, if there are Earth-like planets, it's probable there is life. If there is life that's been around longer than we have, it's very probable that life has figured out a way to get here. It's also very probable, in my opinion, that we're being, at the very least, observed and... They may not like what they see. From the high desert in the great American Southwest, I'm Art Bell. 
It is a beautiful, balmy night in the desert. Nigh on to uh, six minutes after 11 o'clock at night. Currently 79.2 degrees outside. Very dry, just absolutely beautiful. Coming up, Ryan Wood. He earned a Bachelor of Science degree in mathematics and computer science from California Polytechnic State University. He has worked for Intel, Digital Equipment, Toshiba, and two Silicon Valley startups. He has developed and executed advertising and promotion campaigns, direct mail programs, and telemarketing in both consumer businesses and industrial products. He currently manages the content of a website, which is www.majesticdocuments.com. And he has completed a documentary entitled The Secret. Ryan has also published two books and a CD-ROM dealing with the Majestic documents and their authenticity. As a UFO investigator with MUFON, he has chosen to specialize in the strategic problems of ufology, such as unquestionable proof and improved media acceptance. So coming up in a moment, Ryan Wood. Ryan Wood, welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Well, thank you, Art. It's uh, great to be back, and good to hear your voice again. Good to have you. Um, All right. Um, How in the world, Ryan, did you get involved with uh, ufology in the very first place? Well, I I can blame it on my father or or compliment him for it. Uh, He he started studying UFOs when he was a research director at McDonnell Douglas, and, uh, you know, as a a 10-year-old, I was exposed a little bit to it. And then uh, when I was 15, uh, Stan Friedman came to dinner, and um, I got a lot more exposure. Uh, And since that time, we've been working for the past 15 years or so on UFO documents uh, primarily and and crashes. And so that it's been a fun, um, you know, relationship with my father about uh, UFOs. Okay, well, we're going to kind of divide this between UFO documents and crashes. Uh, oh, yeah. let's, be- let's begin with the documents. You know, the Majestic documents have been around a long time, and I, I wonder now, I've always wondered if they were legit or if some are legit and some are not. How do you sift through that? Well, the, the process of authenticating a document is... Uh, is- can be very complex. It's sort of document unique. Uh, but you, you look at the basic things of, well, where did you get it? Um, most of that is pretty muddy where you're getting photocopies. But some cases we have original documents where you can do forensic tests just the way the FBI would do. And that's very powerful and useful. And then you start looking at the content. What does it say? And, and is the order of things correct? And um, are there any weird anachronisms or mm-hmm. problems? Um, Do you the, actually have original, uh, any original copies of the of any of the majestic documents? Well, yeah, there's the um, what's called the Bowen manuscript, which is uh, it was uh, oh, 350 page document of which the Air Force chapter is uh, stamped top secret um, magic. Uh, and that's all original onion skin documents that are, you know, as far as we can tell, they're old and authentic. Uh, and what's fascinating about those, besides being 
an interesting history that was um, created by uh, Vernon Bowen uh, back in the 55, 56 time frame. It, it was sort of a 10-year look at UFOs, and he sent it to the Air Force about that time uh, for for review, and the Air Force kept it and said, no, no, don't publish it, and then anonymously was mailed to Tim Cooper's mailbox in, like, 2000 or 1999 and returned, in essence. Um, and that's that's all original. Um, and Okay, a lot of the audience will not be familiar with the Majestic documents. Can you capsulize for us um, essentially what information uh, or, or the, the high points of the information in those documents? Yeah, well, it, it's the Majestic documents have come from seven different sources from, from 1984 onward, comprising some uh, 3,500 pages of documents that all talk about extraterrestrial entities, uh, technology recovery, uh, craft analysis from Roswell. They're, some of them are very juicy, so to speak, and wow, uh, and, and arresting, and some of them are very pedestrian and bureaucratic where one person's writing a memo to another person about, uh, you know, what, what do we do with this organization's uh, um, ET parts, sort of. So that's the, the quick nutshell of it. Uh, the, the manual, the special operations manual, is one of the ones that we've authenticated the most thoroughly, and it is also one of the most compelling and gripping, um, just from the title extraterrestrial entities, technology, recovery, and disposal. And it's a 32-page uh, how-to manual of how to pick up the bodies, how to keep the public in the dark, how to manage a crash retrieval circa April 1954. Wow. Um, you believe these to be authentic? This particular manual, I, you know, I would go to 99.9%, uh, and my dad would probably say 96.7% or something. You know, we, We've studied it every which way to Sunday, from, from every word to every nuance to type um, to other documents inside the archives. And every place we look, we have not found uh, showstoppers or real problems. And we've verified all sorts of subtleties of the hot lead printing press and interviewed people that were um, in the government printing office that uh, looked at this. The one guy who wrote the style manual for the um, special operations manual um, flipped through the originals and said, wow, I think this is real. Well, the Zs uh, are raised off the line, which is an artifact of the monotype modern hot lead printing press that was in use back in the 50s. Um, and, and just some really obscure subtleties that, that say, yeah, I think this is totally... All right, even, even if something uh, can be authenticated as uh, having been produced or copied in the 50s, doesn't make it authentic. So what else do you look for? I mean, you look for... Well, yeah, I mean, can, can you unequivocally say that none of this is, is 
faked? I mean, could the CIA, KGB, et cetera, fake this stuff? And the answer is, yeah, they could. They'd have to spend a lot of time and money and effort and sophistication. But then you realize, well, why do this program of fakery for right. uh, you know close to 30 years, 32 or three years, with so many mixed purposes and messages, all to sort of say to the Soviets or the Red Chinese, don't mess with us, we got ET technology, and or we'll fry your tail. Uh, it, it seems, you know, when I interview experts in psychological warfare, um, graduates of the JFK Special Warfare Center down by Fort Bragg, who spent their whole life in military psyops, and they, they look at this stuff and say, wow, no. this is like really rotten stuff for psychological warfare. There's so many different messages. Actually, though, you did just lay down a fairly decent motive. Uh, if, yeah. the, if the Soviets actually thought we had extraterrestrial technology, something really far beyond any... I mean, look what happened when they thought we were deploying Star Wars. Scared the hell out of them. Virtually right. caused them to throw up their hands. So, so, yeah, and I agree. That is a very good point, Art, and it, it definitely could be a motive, but... The question in my mind is how would they do it? Would they bother to create a ruckus in the public arena rather than simply slip it to one of their agents to, you know, get it well, in? They might. They, they actually might create a public ruckus. Uh, why not? Uh, in fact, for example, Roswell. Um, why not create a Roswell, get it going, and then produce some secret documents, uh, leak them somehow to the Soviet Union, and just scare the you-know-what out of them? Yeah, I, you know, that's, that's, it's possible. It just seems like a lot of extra work and, and, um, and risk that you, you don't know could all come unraveled, uh, whether, rather than targeting one or two of our agents or double agents to leak intelligence information into those agencies or into those governments. Well, I know Stanton believes them to be authentic. Yeah, and I think most reasonable people that look at it and start to see the breadth and sophistication and complexity start to say, you know, it's it's got to be genuine. Maybe not every single one, but it, it, there's so much smoke, there's got to be some fire here. Mm -hmm. how, much, how much time have you actually spent on all of this in trying to authenticate the documents going over them? I mean, it's been years, right? Right. Well, I think we started off in 96. Um, I would say that between my father and I, we probably have... Uh, one full-time man year at it. Um, yeah, and so it, there's a lot of... And then there's other people that help, too, um, that contribute and, and look at different sections. And there's still a lot more to go. You do this in addition to some sort of full-time job. What do you do for a living, uh, Ryan? Well, I, I'm in the energy business and actually sell energy conservation equipment for... Um, two, I sell it to two corporate energy managers and um, large big box retail. So uh, it's mostly 
motors and controls and um, some exotic lighting and so forth. But it's all very normal energy uh, business and sales. Okay. All right. Um, Can you tell us uh, where any hardware might now be, where we're keeping it? For a long time, we thought... uh, uh, there was something, uh, and I think there certainly was, being kept at Area 51. We don't know where it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that matter, bodies or uh, biological entities of some sort, uh, what do you know? Well, I mean, the documents point to the fact that uh, the Area 51, uh, S4 area, uh, the Wright-Patterson Blue Lab, um, those were the areas where they they specify specifically to take um, parts and so forth. My uh, Beyond that, all I have is what your listening audience has and, and rumor and speculation. Um, but I think that uh, something that's not talked about much and is very much a hotbed of UFO activity is the White Sands Proving Grounds and the area in the upper corner of White Sands Proving Grounds, upper uh, northwest corner, what's called Area 29. And this this area, which was called Area 29, because one of the leaked photographs that came to us, um, there was a big black X in this corner of right sand, uh, White Sands, and, and the person who leaked it wrote Area 29. And when I started looking at Area 29 and uh, going through all the roads using uh, Google Earth and trying to look at the various things that are happening, doing some remote viewing uh, targets in that area, uh, I discovered all sorts of fascinating things. Um, One day I was just elated because I found a convoy of, must have been, 10 or 15 semi-tractor trailers in a 1998 um, aerial photograph going into the side of a mountain. Really? Yeah. And right in Area 29. And so we know that everything really important is underground. I mean... Yeah, we were just talking about underground a little earlier. Uh, As you know, there have been uh, all kinds of hums heard in New Mexico, and for that matter, in the area in which I live here in Nevada. Mm -hmm. We really have felt these things going on underground. So the government or somebody, since I can't really pin it down to the government for sure, just a strong suspicion, is doing something underground. They're boring. They're, They're doing something. And you really have a photograph of a convoy going into a mountain. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, actually, um, uh, during one of the breaks, I'll try to email it to you. Okay. Um, and um, see if we can, you know, get it posted so people can look at it or something. Uh, but uh, that's one particularly fascinating area. Uh, there's also, there's two interlocking Pentagon shapes of roads. These are of roads. Yes. Deliberate Pentagon shapes in this corner of Area 29 uh, on White Sands. You know why? I don't know. Is but, this something that people can go to Google Earth themselves now and identify? Sure. It is. 
Yeah, give yeah, give it a whirl. I I don't. Um, yeah, you want to you want to look in the um, uh, very much near the Trinity Burst site, um, and 20 miles south southeast of Socorro, or uh, you know five miles uh, uh, west of Oscura Peak. Um, but up in that. Do you actually have any latitude-longitude figures for people to make it easier? Uh, yeah, I can probably dig those up here. Let me let me try to hunt those down, and I'll, I'll give them to you. In a, yeah, all right. In a bit. Very good. Um, you know, one important question that you said you can answer um, is why, and I'm very curious about this, why saucers or extraterrestrial craft crash at all? One yeah. would imagine with that kind of technology, uh, something as simple as a lightning bolt uh, or anything that we would throw at them would would not cause any harm at all. Yeah, I, you know, that's the common common thinking is that, you know, how can they travel across the universe and screw up so badly as to crash here? Right. And uh, why would a little lightning bolt or, you know, a little uh, uh, artillery shell bother them? Um the the answers are, are it seems like they do bother them um, they bothered the artillery shells during the uh, battle of LA where a couple of UFOs uh, crashed one in the ocean one in the San Bernardino mountains it from one of the documents shows that the, the artillery shells um, were, did bother them didn't cause things to crash um, the other the other object or idea really is that these are simply probes from another planet, galaxy, civilization, and they may not have the weapons defense that you would normally associate with, um, you know, one of our jet fighters. Uh, you know, one of the little. UAVs that fly around uh, Iraq all the time is is, mm-hmm. is subject to a bullet uh, very easily, and they may have the same thing. It's a it's a question of economics. Is it why send your most expensive stuff to a little planet like Earth to just gather some data that they want? Um, so the idea of remote piloted vehicles, the idea of um, we shoot them down and some standing orders to do that, uh, the idea of radar or interfering with their navigation or communication system um, somehow was foreign and weird, and uh, I think that's that's potentially very real possibility. You, you can't eliminate the idea of, of deliberate seeding of the planet. Uh, I know you've studied uh, a number of uh, alleged crashes. Um, are you pretty well personally convinced that these really were crashes of uh, craft from elsewhere? Well, my book, um, Magic Eyes Only, and associated website, magiceyesonly.com, uh, reviews 74 UFO crashes from around the world exactly. from eight, 18... Uh, 97 to present, and and I rate each one basically from a 50-50 sort of chance that it could be a real crashed vehicle like you describe, um, and 
something. Um, All it takes is one real one, Ryan. Has there been one real one? Hold, hold your answer. We'll be right back. I don't for one second think that there is nothing going on. I've seen with my own eyes. I've had two really incredible sightings, and I'm not alone. There are millions and millions and millions of you who have seen these things. So there really is something in our skies. There's something in our skies that is not uh, conventional aircraft. There's no question about it. What I've seen in both cases didn't resemble any sort of conventional anything that we've got or even have come close to it or has even been leaked, for example. Nothing. So something really is going on. if, If there's been so much as one crash in which we've recovered hardware and or biological entities, that's all it takes. It doesn't take 74 crashes. It only takes one real one. Ryan Wood, back in a moment. All right, Ryan's new book, Magic Eyes Only, reviews 74 UFO crashes and subsequent uh, retrievals. Now, since that book, there have apparently been 10 more, and we'll try and cover what we can. But what I said, Ryan, was we only need one that's absolutely the real McCoy. That's right. And, uh, and I wonder, of those 74... And I know you said you rated them. Uh, were there any that you rated beyond question? Well, no, nothing's really beyond question. Uh, I mean, the the ones that have the highest rating are the ones your audience is most familiar with: uh, Kecksburg, Roswell, Shag Harbor, um, uh, Aurora, Texas. Um, those are the. I think I may have missed one more, but uh, the, there's five that are at the the 80 to 100 percent zone, and, and I'm by no means the expert in in all those cases. There are many other experts, and I just sort of contacted them and compiled their most credible sort of evidence in uh, you know five to ten pages. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the entries are. Um, very suggestive and interesting um, that come directly from the National Archives. In one case down in Bolivia um, in, in 76, we, we have uh, declassified documents uh, talking about a four-meter uh, metallic ovoid uh, shape that, uh, that crashed and we even interviewed some of the military guys that were on the scene that packed it up and, and sent it back to Wright-Patterson. Really? Yeah. And All right. Now, I, I would be interested, for example, in, in some of those uh, interviews, some of, of what was said in those interviews. Yeah. Well, they um, the, the challenge with that is that these are military security guys they, right. they, they, and transportation specialists. They come in, they, they see it. And say, well, okay, it's it's smooth. I don't see any windows, portals, anything. You know, four or five people can lift it up and put it on a truck. Um, they their job is to pick up space junk for you know on special task assignment uh, through Project Moon Dust, and so they've done this for five years and. Their comment was, oh, yeah, once a, 
once a year, a couple times a year, we get a call and we go out, and it's not space junk. It's ET stuff. Mm-hmm. And they pack it up and ship it back. Um, okay, and, and this stuff is uh, currently, for the most part, going to uh, Wright Pat? At the time of this one in 76, it went was. to Wright Patterson. This was the only case. I mean, I'm working on another whole book on Project Moondust and, and Operation Blue Fly. Um, and that, the Moondust efforts to recover debris, I think, is the, the key opening in the government's uh, armor where we have hundreds of declassified pages, no speculation that talk about uh, suspicious craft and suspicious artifacts that could be ET material. Um, they may not be, but the way that it's handled, it's uh, it's pretty darn uh, interesting. And but that that particular case in in seventy six um, in in Bolivia um, is uh, is in my book Magic Eyes Only, which you can um, get through your website, uh, get it on Amazon, and uh, it's it's a powerful case. Okay, uh, what about one close to home here? Something near Devil's Hole, Nevada, right? Yeah, yeah. This is one of the new ten or so that I'm working on. Um, the uh, the story here, right right, um, right on the border of the California Nevada, um, near Devil's Hole, which is where uh, the Death Valley National Monument is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just up the road from Pahrump there. That's right. What uh, caused my attention on this was um, Rich Dolan in his book, uh, UFOs in the National Security State had a, a short little mention of a of an article of a couple of prospectors that were mining and um, a UFO whizzed over their head and crashed and a couple little beings popped out and, and ran around. Yeah. And and I felt that was interesting and so then I looked up the, the newspaper article that referenced it um, and then I did some more back digging. I went three or four days before that in other newspapers and found this sort of Genesis newspaper article uh, before the disinformation guys got a hold of it, changed the names of the miners, changed the story, changed the location. And, and that was one that I've been working on and presented at the, uh, the last uh, – Crash Retrieval Conference, which is um, was the last November in, in Las Vegas. But the story is, in essence, that a couple of miners were um, mining, and over their head comes this silver 24-foot diameter disc. This is in the middle of August, uh, out in the desert, and crashes in front of them. Two little ETs pop out in sort of funny-looking headdress. Uh, they call them leather flying togs. Uh, this is, you know, a 1948 newspaper article. And they chase them for a little bit, but it gets so hot, they don't chase them very far. Yeah, it's very hot in August here. <laughs> it's very hot in August. And 
the guy picks up a couple pieces of metal, takes it back to the um, Los Angeles Herald, which was the evening paper in L.A., shows the reporter the materials. The, the reporter um, uh, shows his editor, I think writes a small article about it, uh, and then tries to go back out to the desert to find the whole craft right. again, but can't. And I think it's because the military picked it up and took it away. And I've used several remote viewers and all the various resources I can muster. And I believe I've firmly identified the spot that this occurred out in the desert. But the critical thing is that you have to pull up parts out of the ground. We believe there are parts that have been scattered around. Most have been picked up. Um, but Are you at liberty uh, to tell us exactly where, or is that uh, something you keep to yourself? That's something I keep to myself. I mean, I, it's approximately near Devil's Hole, you know. If you go in a one, a two, probably a two-mile circle from Devil's Hole, uh, but you're on the Nevada side, um, you, you, it's there. But that pretty when well you, narrows it down, all right. Yeah, it narrows it down. Um, but it's looking for things in the desert was uh, humbling. I've made three trips to hmm. that area. Yes. And and I'm going back with a magnetometer crew as the next final step to hopefully get parts out of the ground. But without parts, you have just an interesting story. You know, it's got some newspaper articles. I think I've confirmed it. I've got some physical tracing going on. I've got the mining sites identified. Um, it's it's mostly there, but uh, I wouldn't rate it past a 50-50 sort of thing right now. Okay. Uh, but if I had some parts that were weird, then I would pop up to 80%. Um, yeah, it's not, even if you get parts, uh, Ryan, it's not a slam dunk. I know. Um, in other words, you take them to a lab somewhere. As you well know, or probably know, I had parts uh, that were uh -huh. sent to me, and they were completely anomalous. We had them tested in Washington. But what you end up with at the end of the day is anomalous parts that are not from Earth. Uh, that does not, unfortunately, identify them any further than that. Uh, yeah. That's where it stops. You, you, you need more. You need you, uh, a part of a craft. You need some sort of biological entity. You need, I, I don't know what you need to finally nail this down. Well, I think you, you need something that shows that it's, uh, you need hieroglyphics uh, or, or writing. Uh, you, you need an economic advantage, ultimately. I mean, with the parts that you had, the layered bismuth magnesium stuff. Very good. That um, if somebody could make that and there was a, a real economic advantage for semiconductors or for something like that and a, and a patent, and profit being generated, then there's a real uh, economic engine to fund the research and to fund further investigations. Some I mean, of the best labs in the country tried, and they can't make it. I know. And uh, what better validation that it is truly uh, special? Well, that's the trouble. You do need better validation. 
we studied it. There's nothing like it on Earth. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, parts of it uh, are not from Earth, clearly. And it can't be duplicated. Uh, y- y- but, but still, that's where it ends, Ryan. Yeah, no, I know. It's got to be compelling. And it, to make it compelling, it's got to be part of a craft. It's got to have hieroglyphics on it. It's got to be visually exciting for the media, too, uh, because having a bunch of Ph.D. metallurgists uh, mm-hmm. debate something is about as uh, exciting as, as watching paint dry. That's right. And uh, so the media wants a lot of uh, titillating sensationalism, on not your show by any means, but, uh, you know, the, the mainstream people do. And it's got to be visual. That's the other thing. And what about biological entities? Now, you mentioned uh, a couple scurried away from this crash, uh, and we've had, obviously, reports of other biological entities that are living or dead. Uh, how much do we know? Is there, does our government still have bodies, uh, alive or dead? Well, I don't have any data other than my research, and my research says that they have bodies, certainly dead, they would never destroy them or give them away or or do anything like that. They would keep them. And so my opinion is I'm extremely confident that they still have biological entities uh, deceased. And the question, and even the majestic documents talk about the potential for biological warfare and the power of that um, weapon, uh, if you were able to use alien viruses or alien tissues to create uh, weapons-grade, hmm. you know. Why, um, why, Ryan, in your opinion, uh, if our government really is aware of all this, if they have recovered craft and or bodies, why are they keeping all of this secret? Well, this is the question that comes up uh, a lot, and mm-hmm. it's the big thing is that it it's a giant unknown. I mean, if you think 9-11 was traumatic for the trajectory of our planet uh, five years ago with the war on terror and where we're at now, the telling the alien secret and ultimately exposing the long history of secrecy and the exploitation of the technology and so forth. It's a giant unknown. You don't know where it's going to go. It would, the impact is, is complex. It may be very positive. It may be very negative. It may be a mix of both. But it is, it's very unmanageable. And, and so for the people that are in the control of the secret, that the thought of just unleashing this giant monkey into the global society is um, it's very, very unpalatable. Well, it may be just that uh, one lie has, uh, uh, um, you know, grown and grown and grown over the years. If this is something that we've been aware of, say, since 1940-whatever. Right. Um, it's been lie upon lie upon lie upon lie, and I, I guess at some point uh, the government uh, cannot afford the additional loss of uh, 
I mean, already, yeah, that's right. Already, the people uh, in this country uh, don't find their government all that credible, and this would uh, perhaps be the last plug out of the ship that sinks it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know. And it's important to realize that it's it's not your congressman uh, who knows, and it may not even be uh, the director of central intelligence agency, and it may be inside compartmentalized programs that are so deeply obscured and sensitive um, that it's hard to really pin down somebody that is responsible. I mean, really, is it a secret government that's doing this, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were aware of it and doing their best to stay involved because it's the energy technology alone and the anti-gravity technology, if they've reverse engineered it, is extremely powerful for uh, whoever controls it um, from a military point of view and as recently... uh, uh, former Canadian Defense Minister Hellyer pointed out uh, mm-hmm. this could be the so- solution to global warming and, and all sorts of other challenges our planet faces. That is certainly correct. Um, I interviewed Colonel Corso uh, many times, uh, fortunately, before he passed, mm-hmm. and I believed him. Now, it was his contention that we have slowly integrated alien technology into our industry. Do you think that is true? And if so, um, what kind of technology do you think we can attribute uh, to, well, elsewhere? Yeah, right. Um, I think the short answer is yes, we we have. Uh, It's another whole book that I've been, putting off, but I've been collecting information, tentatively titled Purloined Progress. But <laughs> the one that comes to mind that's mentioned in the Majestic Documents is a description of fiber optics in 1947, uh, where it wasn't patented until uh, 1954. Um, and this is not to demean the importance and value of all the hardworking engineers and scientists that further developed uh, fiber optics to bring it to the point it is today or the laser or the integrated circuit or or night vision goggles or the host of other technologies that are suspect. Mm -hmm. Um, There's loads of hard work that went into making those all happen from from our terrestrial point of view, but the seed, the kernel, the, the starting point, the aha moment has its origin in in viewing the future and, and seeing the uh, the alien artifact, in essence. And and that's all it takes, really, sometimes, is to know something is possible. That's right. Oh, no, and, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and, and, it is the idea, and from there, uh, away you go. That's right. And uh, so I think there are a lot of reverse-engineered technologies that are uh, in the marketplace uh, today, and... They're important. All right, and so's the break coming up. Ryan Wood, hold tight. Ryan Wood has investigated uh, 74 plus 10 crash sites. We'll touch on a number of them as this program proceeds. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell. My guest is Ryan Wood. 
He has written a book called Magic Eyes Only. In it, he reviews 74 UFO crashes and subsequent military retrievals. So we're going to talk a little bit about retrievals. There must be a very specific order of things that are done when our government goes to a crash site, and I would imagine Ryan knows what those are. In a moment, we'll ask. Ryan, welcome back. Uh, Let's settle a couple of things. You've got some uh, White Sands coordinates for us? Yeah. um, If if you want me to just read them to you? Indeed. Okay. uh, Latitude 33.733849. Yikes. Yep. That's a lot. Uh, Wait a minute. Latitude 33.733849. 489. Got it. And then longitude, minus 106.20783. Okay, let me repeat those. Latitude 33.733-384-89. Longitude, uh, minus 106.20783. Yeah, let's do the latitude one more time. 33.733-8489. Got it. Okay. All right, that'll let people take a look. Now, with regard to the email you sent me of the uh, convoy going into a mountain, uh, what is the title of the email? I get a lot of... uh, Did you send it to Mindspring? Yeah, I did. Okay, what's the title of the email? The title of the email is Area 29 Trucks Going Into a Hillside. Okay, uh, I may not have that yet, so let me keep trying. Um, all right, very good. Now, with regard to uh, military protocol for retrievals, when there is a crash, Ryan, uh, what happens in what order? How do they handle it? Well, um, generally, I think they gather as much intelligence as they can about the, the particular incident and then quickly send a team there to secure the area uh, and get everybody as far away from it as possible if if there's any public around or any military around. Uh, you know, the, the world is a gigantic place, and there's people are only in the cities. Um, and most of the crashes seem to occur in remote areas. They do. Uh, but that makes sense. There are more yeah. remote areas in the world than there are urban areas. Um, Ryan, do you know offhand if the U.S. responds to foreign crashes as well as domestic crashes, uh, or do uh, individual governments uh, respond? Well, the Moondust declassified documents clearly showed that they had an international presence and they would respond mm. internationally to events. They also, the declassified correspondence shows that there's coordination sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, that in 90, 1996 in Somalia, the president of Somalia asked the State Department to help come help me with this stuff. And they sent in a team. Uh, so I think it's, it's done on a case-by-case basis. If the U.S. guys think they can get away with going in there, grabbing it and getting out, they're going to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that would make it easier to keep a secret. I mean, I, yeah. 
Uh, if if individual nations were responding, uh, then one might imagine that this secret just simply couldn't be kept. But if there's some sort of international coordination in terms of response, even if if, if it's somewhat delayed, uh, then you can imagine uh, secrecy might be kept. Well, the other thing is that we're we're forgetting the power of the almighty dollar, and and the real problem that you have. Okay, so a, an ET crash occurs in, let's say, Peru. And the Peruvian government does not have a battery of 100 PhDs in exotic materials or navigations, etc. Only the United States does. Mm-hmm. And they call up the State Department, send them the pictures and say, hey, we got an ET craft. Do you guys want it? Wire me $3 billion to my account and I'll ship it to you. Otherwise, we're going to keep it. And work on it ourselves. And I would not be surprised if there are negotiations like that that occur um, for just, you know, materials. Um, Because they're stuck. You know, a small country without a a deep, rich set of education and intellect and and, um, industry can do nothing with it. And, And it's even questionable whether or not America or other industrialized countries can really do something with it. We can do probably a little more. But it's a big challenge to the people that got the gear. All right. I just received, and I'll be damned if you're not right, uh, I have received the uh, uh, the pictures, the convoy entrance and the picture of the convoy. Yeah. And I'm going to forward this on right now to the uh, the two webmasters we have in hopes that they're still awake and can possibly get them up for everybody to see. So I appreciate your having sent this. And indeed, folks, just in case you don't get to see it, it does show a very long convoy indeed uh, going into what appears to be the side of a hill. So Yeah. And we've done some remote viewing targets on that underground complex, and uh, it's very large. And this picture was taken in uh, 1996. You know, this is 10 years old. And it's just a, a fluke of, of luck that we, we get it where the trucks are actually going into the well, That's amazing. That's yeah. absolutely amazing. I've never seen anything quite like this. Um, so hopefully uh, we'll get it on the website for everybody to see. Very good. Cool. Um, all right. How much, uh, how much do we know about uh, the ability of these craft to quite obviously and apparently defy gravity? Well, they, they certainly seem to be divine. The data says that you see water coming up uh, above the surface uh, slightly, maybe a foot off the surface when a UFO is, is hovering. So there's, um, there's cases like that. Um, we all know they disappear over the horizon in a couple of seconds, and that's thousands of Gs, and our science doesn't know how to deal with that. Um, it only takes just a teeny bit of, of quote, anti-gravity or, or gravitational reduction to create a, a flywheel to just keep going and going and going mm-hmm. and generate, in essence, free energy. All right, and that's what's on everybody's mind. God knows we need energy. Uh, so is there anything in any of these papers that uh, that gives us a hint how it's done or, you know, on the technological end of it, is, is there anything? 
Well, yeah, there is. There's one section in the um, the White Hot report, which is the report that was done in September of uh, 47, after uh, three months of sort of analyzing the uh, the Roswell wreckage. Uh, this is a Magic Eyes only report that uh, Twining's people put together, and so they. They talk about, in point 18, the following elements were analyzed and found to exist in a small neutronic power plant that was found inside ULAT-1, unidentified lenticular aerodyne technology number one. The first thing was UF-6 in metallic form, that's uh, uranium hexafluoride, Mm -hmm. uh, hydrogen fluoride gas, water and uranium uh, tetrafluoride, powdered magnesium and potassium chlorate, Metals similar to lead or a chocolate brown in color, so they're something they don't understand. Right. Uh, uranium-235 in metallic form, a plastic-like material similar to NE-102. NE-102, when we first read that, we said, what the heck is NE-102? And it turns out it's a, um obscure historical reference to a... a uh, a neoprene type material that's perfectly accurate for 1947, but makes absolutely no sense to modern science. Um, it was discontinued a few years later. Um, beryllium, pure aluminum, th- uh, thorium isotope material, and plutonium powder. Um, so they they sort of list down those things. They had mass spectroscopy back then. Um, and they should be able to figure out most of that. The question is, how does it work? They don't. They don't know. Or they don't say. Right. Well, this is the top secret thing, and it is. It is a a preliminary uh, technical evaluation. So, yeah, I would think that there's a dozen PhDs that would have been writing follow-up reports uh, and taking it to the next level, and we just don't have those documents. One would also imagine, uh, at least I imagine, that with the state of the world right now and how much trouble we're apparently in with our environment and the the need for energy, obviously these kind of craft would be using uh, some, some sort of... Uh, technology that would get us out of trouble and uh, at some point the need for that is going to eclipse whatever they've concocted as the need for keeping this so secret well i i agree with you and you know there you know if, if i was the intelligence officer managing the secret i might say well okay yeah the planet's in dire straits let's go fix it and so they 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 create a little super classified program to stick a, a propulsion unit or something up at the North Pole and generate ozone or scrub CO2 at an ungodly rate. And, right. Uh, and they do it all super secret. Don't tell anybody about it. They just do it. And the world gets better. Well, there's that. And then there's, of course, our um, uh, insatiable need for energy in whatever form and whatever powers these craft uh, certainly would be in that category. Yes, yes it would, and and that's the whole bugaboo about um, 
telling the, the truth or letting it out because it changes the power structure of the Middle East, it empowers uh, people and African nations, uh, it, it, it just changes the power structure and the authority structure, uh, it doesn't happen overnight, but in 10 years it would be dramatically different, and the people that are in power want to keep their authority and power, um, and uh, it would it would change, and it would be unpredictable. And then there's this, Ryan. You hear about crashes in various places, Somalia, South America, um, all over the world, and uh, there's a brief little flurry about them, inevitably, in Africa I can recall uh, several, and then the story just goes away. It just goes away, Ryan. Yeah. Well, I, that's right. And that's a, you could say that about almost any news story, uh, unless there is a charismatic leader or champion who's, uh, or organization that's bringing it up and pushing it through the media system uh, well and giving the media what it wants, which is compelling physical evidence and, and credible testimony. And th that's really the thing that's been lacking in this whole field is compelling physical evidence. I mean, the arts parts that you had were, were very good, mm -hmm. and they are, they are compelling. But we, we haven't had any more, and they aren't really that compelling, um, as you said yourself. Uh, that's right. I mean, they're they're not of this earth, or they exhibit um, uh, when they're tested uh, things that are not of this earth. But but that's what you're left with, Ryan. Then yeah. there was, uh, for example, the sighting I had, <clears throat> and it's pretty typical of how the media handles things. I see a giant triangle that blots out everything in the sky, along with my wife at the time. Uh, the local newspaper reports on it because I would, we weren't the only ones that saw it. Many, many people in the valley saw this giant triangle defying gravity floating out across the entire valley, straight across the valley, Ryan. And the local newspaper runs a story. They inquire of Nellis Air Force Base. Nellis responds by saying, well, yes, and this was in the newspaper. There may have been a, a flight uh, uh, that over secret uh, mission that overflew the Pahrump Valley on that night, uh, as reported, uh, but it was a C-130 aircraft. Now, that's laughable, it's insulting. At the time, I got very angry, but that's where the story died. Nobody pushed it beyond that. God knows I tried, but it remained as reported. You know, when the government says it and, and the newspaper reports it, that's it, Brian, it dies. It was a C-130. I know it's it's a sad it's a difficult uh, difficult problem and so my whole approach to it is to just you know focus on crashes where I can get physical evidence and begin to drag more and more physical evidence and your parts are are not the only parts that's right. Um, uh, Roger Dr Roger Lear has parts uh, Ramey Baca up in um, in. Uh, Gig Harbor, Washington has parts. Um, there, and there's three or four other people that have parts in various stages of testing and sophistication. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we're all in the same uh, situation, and that is, at the end of the day, um, anomalous as they might be, that's all they are. Now, you said that there are 
there have been uh, roughly 10 additional crashes since oh, yeah. you've written your book. Uh, what else has happened that, that is of interest? Well, the, uh, one of the other crashes that, I'm, that I just became aware of was um, uh, in, in Fort Hunter Liggett, which is a, uh, an Army base uh, outside of King City, California, sort of uh, two-hour drive south of San Jose, um, in 72, there was a, a laser weapons test going on, and apparently, according to one witness, it's just one witness case, um, but a credible witness who has been interviewed by uh, Kerry Cassidy and uh, Bill Ryan, UFO appears, they shoot the laser at it, it crashes, we got some parts we got uh, several grays um, some were alive and in good health uh, so that's sort of a, an interesting kernel of a story it needs a lot of additional follow-up and checking um, to again move the authenticity needle up but it's a start of something interesting uh, another one that I've been working on is was in Elk Mountain, Wyoming, in the summer of 71, where a UFO flaming fireball comes down, crashes, and uh, burns up the hillside, and a lot of uh, locals, you know, try to contain the fire. And NASA at the time shows up, uh, a few hours later, or as fast as they can, maybe eight or twelve hours later, right. with vehicles, uh, with and they they jam the entire town's in RF output, so all the TV stations, radio stations, everything didn't work, hmm. and all the citizens remember this. I've actually seen that done, Ryan. There was a time when um, they kind of laid a. Um, uh, an RF blanket is the only way I could describe it over our valley here. And uh, I have irrefutable proof of it. I mean, everything went dead at once. My satellite uplink went down, um, microwave internet uh, at about 12 locations, uh, we're a small town, uh-huh. completely went down. Anything out of this, I mean, it all went down. I, I have no idea. How our military is able to do that, but uh, it is—it is indeed something they can do. I think we used it uh, in Iraq, as a matter of fact, at the beginning of the war. Yeah. Uh, so we have that ability. We can virtually stop all communication. How we do that? What kind of electromagnetic blanket we're able to lay down? I have no idea, but we can do it. That's that's right, and that's what they did in this little town. Um, and then, according to a couple of witnesses that we've got uh, videotape on, they pulled a vehicle off the hillside, put it on a uh, semi-tractor trailer, tarped it all up. It was very heavy and, and uh, nearly maxing out the semi, uh, disc-shaped, and uh, drove it out. Um, it was a small newspaper article uh, sort of saying there was a fire, but nothing more. And that's where the story ends until we All right, and that's where this segment ends, Ryan. We'll be right back. Well, all right, Ryan Wood is my guest. He has uh, 
He's actually started some crash retrieval conferences. Now, I would imagine somebody uh, like Ryan, who's written a book on the subject, looked into 74 crashes, continues to look into them, uh, might be watched very carefully by our government. Somebody in our government. I wonder if that has occurred. In a moment, we'll ask about that. Well, all right. Good job, Lex Lonehood. If you go to the coasttocoastam.com website right now, at the very top center part of the website, you'll see feature article Area 29 Convoy. And all you've got to do is click where it tells you to, and you will see the photograph in question that Ryan sent to me uh, about an hour ago. So there you go, Ryan. It's up on the website right now. Everybody's going to get to see it. Cool. Um, now, with regard to uh, with regard to uh, these retrieval conferences, um, you began one. What what goes on at those conferences? I mean, do you have people uh, who come and actually testify about things they've seen or know about with regard to uh, retrievals? Um, I, I hope. No, it's 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 more like um, it, it's a traditional. Uh, UFO conference in, in that sense. Uh, I have speakers that uh, do PowerPoint presentations and write written proceedings, um, and I try to select people that uh, are not only interesting but they're good orators and uh, and and deliver good, you know, charisma and value to the the audience. So. But most of the time, I Linda Howe is a regular. Uh, she's been to every crash retrieval conference. Uh, I cover between three and six crashes at every conference. So there's an hour-long presentation about a specific crash where we'd have a, an expert in that particular crash talk about the status of it, where the investigations are, um, what they've learned, where they're going. Uh, it's okay. been a wonderful forum to uh, push the hard physical evidence and, and the core. In my opinion, the two things the government or the control group does not want the, the world to know. One is that they have real hardware and bodies. And two, that abductions are real and they can't do a damn thing about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's a big uh, trauma that uh, people's minds can be manipulated and changed and influenced, uh, and they don't know what to do about that. All right. Well, you've written a book. You've looked into a lot of crashes. You're holding these conferences. At any uh, point, Ryan, have you felt as though you have been observed, or have you been contacted by anybody that you think may have been from our government? Nobody's really contacted me directly um, and, and, and given me – there's been some hints here and there, but nobody um, – I think there's some people that have come to the conferences that um, are in the know or partially in the know. I, I have – you know, they have their spies coming to my conferences. I have spies uh, on my team uh, running counterintelligence on them. I'm sure they're happy to hear that. Yes, I would. Im- <laughs> I would imagine uh, they would have people at your conferences. So, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's just a natural thing. Uh, they would want to know what you know. So, yeah, 
So, yes, uh, and I'm sure you scan the crowd and look very carefully at who's there. Right. Well, they, they, they all register, and I'd love to have the resources to, you know, do full background checks on everybody, but that seems a little bit uh, unfair and, and unreasonable if you want to come to a conference and, and mm-hmm. get, to get that sort of nth degree. Have you um, ever done any research, for example, on your website? Uh, that's another thing that I am told, Ryan, that our government does, and that is, regularly visits websites like yours, and it's not all that hard to do some traces on uh, IPs and find out who's looking. Yeah, I mean, I've done a little bit of that, and there's uh, the usual 5% or 10% that is .mil or .gov, um, and maybe that's a little higher than most websites, but yeah, I I get some traffic like that. Actually, one of the other interesting projects that I'm working on is something called UFODEX, uh, UFODEX UFODEX.net, which is a complete compendium of all UFO knowledge. It's a a mother of a project, but as a little pilot, I've I've scanned and OCR'd uh, 200 books, uh, UFO books that are full-text searchable. Newspaper articles, I've got like five, ten thousand pages. This is still in beta. It isn't really launched yet into the public domain, but people that want to learn a little bit about it can go to ufodex.net. But I suspect that in the next uh, month or so, it's going to go online. And for the first time ever, you're really going to have a dedicated UFO library that you can search just like Google Mm. and start to get the correlations and, well, give me all the abduction cases in Tennessee, or I want flying triangles in Nevada only. <laughs> and and you can, you can full-text search, you know, thousands of books and newspaper articles and things like that, and that's never been available um, before. Have you uh, interfaced with Dr. Greer at all? A little bit. Um, uh Dr. Greer is problematic in my mind. Uh, in what sense? Well, he's he's well-intentioned and charismatic, um, and he, he well, let's say how to phrase this politely. Yeah, he he seems to be more interested in making money off the phenomenon than. Um, benefiting or, or, or advancing the cause. Uh, it's I've heard some really unfortunate stories from people that have attended his his conferences or his uh, his seminars weekend. I never got that sense from him, uh, but but then of course I've never been to one of his conferences. I've had him uh, on the air. Yeah, yeah. And one thing he's done that I I thought is worthy. You know, if you look at when all this began in the mid forties or so. Uh, 40-whatever, mid-40s, the people involved, the people who would have been involved since that time are now probably approaching retirement age. Uh Uh, They're getting on up there. And one thing he's done is to call for these people to, uh, despite what they might have signed, um, what agreements they might have made, you know, for the cause of mankind and the state of the world right now to come forward. And... I, I think that's a very, very good idea, and I, I would love to see Congress uh, 
pass some sort of legislation that would give them some protection. Oh yes, that would that would do a wonderful job to uh, get more witnesses out. And his whole disclosure book has all been scanned and OCR'd into UFODEX. And the the focus on witnesses is very good, and um, and a neat needs to be done endlessly, and I'm looking forward to the witnesses that are going to call in in the next hour, potentially, um, who, who know something and want to talk about uh, their firsthand experience with this phenomenon and the military cover-up of it. Well, uh, that would be, of course, of great use. Uh, what would not, uh, even though there are millions of us out there, would be sightings. Now, people will call in endlessly uh, Ryan with sightings. Um, I know. You know, it's it's interesting, but it's it it doesn't push things forward really. Uh, if no. on the other hand, you've got somebody who's been in the military, been involved in a crash retrieval, or been involved with a hands-on something or another, you've got a another story entirely. Right. Yes. Any anybody that had um, you know been on a moon dust operation or a blue fly operation. Right. Um, or a military crash retrieval, uh, those are the, the people that would be very interesting to hear from, even even anonymously. You've been doing this for for a long, long time, and your listening audience has been, you know, had the opportunity to send you information in the mail endlessly. All my adult life, Ryan. I know. And it's only happened a couple of times. It sounds to me like you're going to go back to this devil's hole area. You, do you have an expectation that something major is still there? Yes, I have an expectation that uh, there's still evidence there. And uh, I think there's evidence at, you know, one of the talks that I had at last year's crash retrieval conference was I had a uh, an experimental plane archaeologist come and present and after his presentation, he'd been to 100 different uh, classified airplane crashes, some of it, you know, very super secret, some of it, you know, both stealth fighter crashes and so forth. And I walked away with a profound happiness that there's no way in hell that they can cover up a crash effectively. If it mm. impacts the ground and spreads around, they can't oh, pick it all up. Yeah. There's parts, there's evidence left. And he showed countless pieces of stealth fire crash materials that he got when it was still classified. And it was very reassuring to know that uh, they can't pick it up. I mean, they really could if they tried, you know, scrape the earth a meter thick, uh, you know, and, and cart it all off. Uh, spend a week or two there with lots and lots of people. But they don't do that because it's, it draws too much attention. And so now it's just a question of finding these crashes and pulling up parts. And, and all it takes is one, as you say, but I like four or five. Yeah. Again, going back to uh, people who might come forward, if you were uh, in your late 50s, mid-60s, you're uh, about to retire, you had signed a secrecy agreement, you at this point are beginning to get uh, perhaps your retirement benefits. You've got a family, Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, what is your uh, what is the likelihood that you're going to come forward? Risk everything you've got, risk your family, risk going to jail, uh, and risk uh, risk your livelihood uh, between now and when you pass. Uh, it's not high, Ryan. No, it's not high. It's Honestly, not, high. not too many people are going to do that, are they? No, they aren't. And uh, it's the people that are 80 or 90 that um, feel that they've performed uh, unspeakable acts in the name of UFO secrecy for virtually nothing, and they feel it's important to uh, finally uh, gain some peace for their their God or their mind or their Mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. And those are the people we need to go to the attics and pull out their papers and, and find the stuff and well, you said you said people who may have committed unspeakable acts. Uh, what are you referring to? Are you talking about everything up to and including murder? Oh yeah. For example, in my book, Magic Eyes Only, uh, I I have the closing chapter sort of discusses Thomas Cantwell, which is the guy who leaked the majority of the documents directly to Tim Cooper, and in his closing uh, final page memo saying. You know, I'm about ready to, by the time you read this, I'll be dead of cancer, blah, blah, blah. But I've done countless unspeakable acts uh, in the name of UFO secrecy. Uh, He didn't specifically state I murdered people, but it was clearly implied. And uh, the Special Operations Manual clearly authorizes... uh, you know, deadly force. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're on that subject, coming back to you, your own situation, Ryan, aren't you a little bit concerned um, at times for your own safety? Well, you know, I, nobody's really nobody. Nobody's ever threatened me or or bothered me. I think that I'm not doing anything really dangerous. And oh, well. Well, I mean, in a sense, you are. Uh, Look at what you're looking for, whether it's you or Dr. Greer or anybody else in this business. If you stumble into something real and something current and something dangerous. um, a different game. Well, then you're not going to get threatened, Ryan. You just will, uh, you'll go away. Yeah, well, you know, that's, uh, it's always that risk. Um, And... It's for the benefit of humanity and our right to know. I, uh, I think that most of the time they say they warn you, and then they warn you again, and then they'll be more virulent about it, and uh, then you may die. It seems like there's a, a gentle escalating pattern that you... Because one of the talks that I gave uh, at the second annual crash retrieval conference was on uh, convenient deaths in support of UFO secrecy. Yes. And I just focused on, I have a whole database of people that I believe have been murdered for the, the sake of UFO secrecy, but I just focused on 10 people in the talk, in the crash retrieval proceedings, which you can you can buy on ufoconference.com. Um, and a couple of cases were like that, where you had this escalation. Um, well, if, if there was a, a sort of a gentle escalation uh, of revelation, then I can see that what you said might be true. You might 
get a kind of a warning. Then you might even get another warning, and then something might happen. But if you really stumbled into something extremely hot, right? Yes, you might not get any warning at all, right? Yes, yes, I think that's that's true, and uh, and so you know the the question is is a is a hatch door of a, a flying saucer that hot? And I would tend to think yes. Yeah. I mean, if, if you could really present a hatch door uh, made of materials that were not of Earth, uh, as an example, uh, and it was obviously a manufactured but not earthly item, I would say that would uh, rate right on up there, yes. Yep, and that's, uh, that's when I become um, as paranoid and skillful as I possibly can. All right. Uh, hypothetically, Ryan, let's say that you found something like that or e- even even bigger. How would you handle it? Have you thought about that? How in the world would you handle it? Well, there are lots of things to think about. Uh, mm-hmm. the, is it radioactive? Uh, how are you going to transport it? Um, how are you going to isolate it? Do you, you, know, you want to fly it or drive it? Uh, who do you tell? Who do you not tell? Do you slice up parts and send them uh, in the mail to 20 different people? Do you get a piece? Um, do you do multiple videotaping? Do you wear gloves? You, you, you do a lots of things like these uh, to ensure that the evidence is secured uh, credibly and forensically, as well as um, for the public good and, and your ultimate safety. Uh, so I've thought about it a little bit. Um, and then how do you go public in a way that keeps you alive? Well, you, going public is a tricky thing. What you, what you need to do is to have multiple credible experts already lined up endorsing your case. Mm-hmm. And you need to think about who the counter arguments or people would be, uh, who would CNN draw on, who would... Uh, the other major media draw on to uh, rebut or provide uh, perspective and make sure that they're already uh, on in your camp. And are you, are you truly confident enough in the major media? You can mention CNN or Fox or any, any group you want of the major networks. Are you confident enough in the major media in America that you would go to them and and feel that they would handle it honestly. No, I'm. I'm <laughs> I think they would be as tongue in cheek as they have been with most things. I think so as well. Listen, we're coming to a break, Ryan. Uh, here's what I would like to ask the audience: They're going to get recitation of the numbers here in a moment. Uh, rather than getting citing reports, if we could talk to anybody who's had a close encounter of a third kind, in other words, actually um, met uh, or encountered an alien or has laid hands on a part, been at a crash, been part of a military team that cleaned up a crash, been part of a military encounter, uh, people of that sort. If we could call on those people in this next hour, we'll see if we get any calls, Ryan, see where we go. Ryan Wood is my guest, crash retrievals, And the majestic topics are the subject.
Hi, everybody. My guest is Ryan Wood. And what we're going to be looking for with those phone numbers are people who have been involved in crash retrievals, people in the military who have had encounters, uh, but primarily people who have really been there. Now, I know it's tough, tough to ask you to come forward. We will certainly keep, uh, as best we're able, your uh, uh, your information, uh, such as whatever whatever we have, uh, to ourselves. Uh, so you can come forward anonymously if you like, but we would like you to come forward. Take a shot at it anyway. Uh, in a moment, I do have a question about uh, the UFO community for Ryan Wood. We'll be right back. Ryan, I, I, I take it you would agree uh, with me when I say that the, the media really does a job on ufology. I mean, when reports come in, uh, even the good ones, they, they tend to sort of make a joke out of it, right? Yeah, I mean, we saw, saw that with the Chicago activity. Uh, O'Hare, know. yes. Yeah, O'Hare. That was, that was a great case. You know, lots of witnesses, cell phone pictures, and... Um, and they still, despite having lots of credible data and, and something very reasonable, uh, put in the snicker factor. At mm-hmm. least CNN did, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan, uh, that's true. Now, um, as much damage as the media may do, uh, they don't nearly do as much damage as ufology does to itself. And you kind of took a shot across the, the bow of Dr. Greer a little while ago. Um you know, when you're not on the radio and when ufology uh, people get together, they are so destructive of each other that um, one wonders how it survives at all. Well, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, oh, yes, I mean I've been to MUFON conferences and been speaking all around. I mean, there are heated debates here and there, um, and... Uh, that happens, but heated I, debates are fine. But uh, when it degenerates into personal attacks, which inevitably it does, um, I, I've watched. Uh, I've watched it over the years, Ryan. Uh, ufology just decimates itself. It really does. Well, I just want to do what I can do, and that is to focus on what I think is the important stuff, and that's crashes and. Um, and, and the documents and the Oh, it's trail. important work. It's important work, Ryan. Uh, there's yeah. no question about it. It's just that I hate to see uh, ufology do this to itself. God knows there's few enough who are investigating all of this sort of thing, as you are. Uh, very few of us, uh, indeed, in the world. And we seem to just eternally fight with each other. Maybe it's just the nature of man. Let's uh, take some calls and see what we've got. Randy in Georgia, you're on the air with Ryan Wood. Hello. Hi, Art. How are you doing? I'm okay. Uh, I worked for a defense contract, and I'm not really sure I should be talking about this, but it's um, the time we were building an X-plane, and uh, they built two copies of it, and they built three cockpits for it. And one of the cockpits was uh, liquid-filled. There was no seat in it, and the pilot would be suspended in there. And I, I just... Wondered if anybody had found a crash site with a liquid-filled cockpit. I don't understand how that would affect G-forces or, you know, I was just a mechanic that put it together. That's very interesting. Ryan, have you heard of anything like that? No, I've never heard anything like that. It reminds me of of some abduction stories where um, 
I think I want to say the Andreessen affair, where the human was put in a, a gel-filled goo and, and actually breathed it and then taken and come back. Um, but uh, I would think that a, a goo like that would be good for supporting you um, for high G travel. But uh, yeah, I was wondering. Like I said, I was, this is one project I was never asked to sign a non-disclosure form. Hmm. Interesting, because it, it does. You know, according to them, it just didn't exist. You know, and they could never say it existed because my name's net. You know, it's not going to show up anywhere. Did you ask any questions about it? Oh, always, always. And, Did you get uh, any answers? No, <laughs> but the cockpit was the same cockpit that was used on the X-Plane that we did build, and it flew in the 80s. Yeah, it was it single I, seat or two seats? or Did I what? Was it a single seat? or? Yes, yes, it was, but this particular cockpit had no seat in it, and the pilot was suspended in a space suit, I'd say, uh, that was, you know, probably comparable to what you would uh, wear on a SR-71. Hmm. But I, I just. You know, I think we just lost him. Wow. Except... I... Oh, no, you're there. Caller? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, good. No, we just had a sort of an interference there. God knows what okay. that might have been. All right, so this thing was, um, it, are you sure it was water? Well, it was water the first test. The second test looked more like consistency of what aloe would look like. It was a gel type. Well, boy, isn't that weird? And I've never heard anyone speak about it. And like I said, I was never asked to sign a non-disclosure form. So as far as I know, I, I can talk about it. I don't know because it doesn't exist. And you just saw the cockpit, right? You didn't see the whole craft. I did see the craft. Um, I can tell you it was the X-29. Oh, X-29, okay. It was a forward-swept wing aircraft. What and year was this? Caller, what you what year? Pardon me. What year was it? Oh God, nineteen eighty-eight or eighty-nine. Mm -hmm. It's back a few years. Hmm. And like I said, every other black project I've worked on, I had to sign a non-disclosure. And they've all come out since then. But okay, I mean, this particular plant, you know, worked on a few things for Israeli Air. Uh, the Lave plane, I believe, I believe they built six of them. But very, the, very the interesting. Really and and you, I'm, I'm sorry, you said everything else that uh, you did sign an agreement on has become public? Yes, yes. And, All right, well, yeah, listen, I, could... I, I really, really appreciate the information. Um, that is kind of intriguing, Ryan. It, it is. It is an intriguing uh, uh, tidbit. The more I think about it, the more I think uh, it would uh, enable a person to withstand more G-forces. What do I know? I'm not, not a scientist, but just thinking about it, it seems like it would. Yeah, especially if it went into your lungs, too, um, and went inside your body, and that, that would allow you to uh, uh, survive more Gs. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. All right. Uh, John and Sherman Oaks, uh, you're on with Ryan Wood. Good morning. This is the weirdest thing in the world. Do you remember, Art, I spoke to you a few months ago, and I told you that I was the one when Aerie, uh, the guys, they're going to probably cut the line on me 
But that suit that they're talking about, that area, I'm the one who came up with that idea for that sort of fluid-filled area. You are? Yeah, I called you you, up. John, you were already on the line when that other caller called. Right, yeah, but I, I talked to you months ago, and, and you, I told you the contract work, and they used to tell what would you do under these circumstances? They, they, Boy, are you ever breaking up, Ryan. You never know. <laughs> um, I've got you sort of, only sort of. Uh, you're breaking up. You're on a cell, obviously. Okay, you should hear me uh, real good now. I do. Okay. Now, like I said, they were replacing SR-71 with another craft back in the, in the 80s. And they asked me, they said, look, we have incredible G-forces on the pilot. And I said, why don't you take this stuff? There's this new child's toy out, this, this, this slime stuff. I said, if you were to fill an area up with this slime, this gooey, you remember that, to- that toy that kids used to play with, that slime, that gooey yes. stuff? Yes, Yeah, I said, if you use this stuff, it would damper the G-forces on the pilots because they said they're having problems with whiplash, with uh, breaking the pilot's neck at the G-forces. Mm-hmm. I said, fill up the area of the cabin with this same material. Had this slime stuff. I don't know the exact uh, makeup of it. And then they and, and they said, yeah. I said, okay, yeah, we'll work on that. And uh, apparently, according to your last caller, they actually did what what, what I actually told apparently them. Apparently so. Uh, John, is that why you were calling? Uh, no, no, no. That wasn't the original reasons. Because I've worked with defense and myself and people that we work with. We get. I don't know if it relates to the alien thing. I don't know, but we do get kidnapped and then hypnotized to forget things. Because I have to go to college every three years. I absolutely cannot even write my own name after this happens to us. We systematically get kidnapped, and then we're hypnotized or done something where we forget almost everything. And after a few years, it does come back, and then we're grabbed again, and it's a nightmare. Some of the guys have killed themselves already over this. Ryan? Fascinating. The first time I ever heard of that, it makes sense. We don't realize how important... Uh, the whole people management, the psychological profiling, and um, th- the security oaths and, and so forth are. And this seems like a very logical, reasonable step if you had a program or a mission that was so super secret and sensitive that you you had to employ every possible angle to ensure uh, uh, no leaks. Yeah, exactly. There's a project up in Canada that I was aware of where they're working on high-powered holographic uh, imaging laser systems to actually confuse the enemy. And it, it comprised of nine people, and out of the nine, there's only one still alive. Hmm. So, um, yeah, like you said, I, I, I got out of the, uh, the field uh, real fast. <laughs> you know, after a few weird things have happened, I said it's not worth it, and I got out of it. And uh, when I quit, actually, I was so uh, disturbed with what, what happened that I left my uh, $300 leather jacket on top of my car, <laughs> and I drove out of the business and laughed real fast. And uh, it, it is, it is, it is uh, the UFO part of it. It's, it, it is freaky. There are things going on that are that are very strange. Where they're talk, talked about reverse engineering um, certain uh, things. And then what you, what you, you brought, actually brought up something that made the hair stand up on my arms because I heard it before and it's extremely classified. Where did you actually hear about? The, the alien biological warfare stuff, because I, I heard that was extremely, extremely classified. Where'd you get that? Well, that's uh, right there in the uh, the majestic documents uh, leaked in 19... Uh, uh, well, it, it's allegedly written in 47. Let's see if I can find the exact passage quickly. Um, and... Uh... Caller, you might want to get in touch uh, privately with Ryan. Ryan, uh... You've got email? 
Oh, I've got email. It's all on my website uh, at Majestic Documents and or on my phone number, too. And All right. Well, some of the people who are getting through and who might not get through might want to get in touch with you. So we've got a link on your website, and the email is right there, correct? Yeah, that's right. All right. Yeah, do you have that you, passage? Yeah. Could you still hear me? Yeah, yes. I do have that passage. Go um, ahead. It's, it's under biological warfare programs. Uh, BW programs in the U.S. and U.K. are in field test stages. This is a top secret 1952. Discovery of a new virus and bacteria agent so lethal that serums derived by genetic research can launch medical science into unheard of fields of biology. The samples extracted from the bodies found in New Mexico, they're talking about the uh, alien bodies, have yielded new strains of a retrovirus, retrohyphen virus, not totally understood, but give the promise of the ultimate biological weapon. The danger lies in spread of airborne and bloodborne outbreaks of disease in large populations with no medical cures available. Wow. Yeah, could you still hear me, guys? Yes. Yeah. Uh, are, you, are you familiar with Gloria Ramirez? Her body was cut open and people in the hospital acted to wear spacesuits because uh, poor, uh, gas was coming out of her body like what happened in the alien autopsy. Oh, yeah. I recall that story, yes. Yes, what happened is she was exposed to something, the government covered it up, and her body was completely uh, warfare. Uh, All right, we're really losing you. I, I certainly recall that story. Do you, Ryan? Yes, I do, but I, I didn't study it. Okay, well, you might want to look into that. It was a really, really weird story, no question about it. Uh, West of the Rockies, Donna in Mesa, Arizona, you're on the air with Ryan. Yes, I was hoping after listening to your show for some time that somebody could shine some light on this. This <laughs> happened to me when I was about six or seven years old. Um, I've only heard of people talk about beings with long spindly fingers, but this was entirely different. And I've wondered um, <laughs> what it was I encountered. Um, the story's a lot longer, but I'll break it real short. Um, I guess it was a screen memory I had for a dream. It's like a, now when I look back on it, it was like a past life experience. Um, next thing I know, I'm floating in the air after being ran over, and um, and then my bed's floating. And I, the psychiatrist I went to said, oh, it sounds like cataplexy. Uh-uh, no, I was awake, yeah, like they say, um, not able to move, but terrified because I could hear and feel my sheets flapping in the wind, and it got colder and colder and colder. And the bed was clearly flying, and I was terrified of falling off. The next thing I know, it's coming back to earth, and it thumps to the ground, and I'm awake. Now, no more cataplexy, if that's what it was. I am awake. I go to draw my hands up to put them under the covers, and I feel something on the bed. And I'm like, what's this? And I, I slept in the same room with my brother and sister. They were across the room on a bunk bed for a minute there. I thought maybe, maybe they were playing a joke, maybe they sleepwalked, something. It wasn't them. And I've never had a hand, I've never encountered anything like this. It had, like, leathery-like skin, and I knew nothing about reptilians or anything back then. But from what I hear now, maybe that's what it was. The best I could describe it then was something that had died and had rigor mortis. It was very stiff. Um, where the four fingers should be, it was like a pad on the back, like, like one big fingertip, like a mitten. Hmm. And where the, four, where the four fingers were, it was one huge fingernail with a very I'm sorry this is real with a very pointed tip and the thumbnail was shaped just like it with a very pointed tip I 
was terrified as a child. I did not want to look to the side of the bed, and for some reason in my child mind, I felt if I screamed for my parents, it would jump up and get me. Just the way a kid thinks, huh? So I thought, hey, I can't lay here like this all night either. So I tried to push it off the bed, and I got almost all the way there. I was afraid to put my fingers too close to the edge. And um, <laughs> now when I look back on it now, you know, it's like rigor mortis. It just swung back up over me. And I'm like, oh, God, I thought I was going to die right then. So I pushed one more time, and I heard it hit the floor, and those covers went over my head. And I don't know how I fell asleep, but the next morning when I got up, boy, I was under that bed and looking around the toy boxes. Nothing there. Um, but an interesting thing is the little toy I had from childhood, from my infancy, was slashed like a razor blade in half, and it was a little squeak toy of a kitten. And in the dream when I got hit um, by the vehicle, I was retrieving a kitten and it screamed I don't know what the connection is like I say I've heard you talk about screen memories um it just was weird it was just too weird but I know that hand was real and um all right well Donna listen thank you um let's let's take up the subject uh with Ryan very quickly of screen memories uh many people talk about that Ryan um yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not an abduction expert, but uh, it's it's a classic uh, method of, of either allowing the aliens to mask the experience for the human or the human to cope with the experience of the alien. I don't know which is which. And uh, it's they seem to be multiple types of screen memories from owls to kittens to other animals or situations. Orion, what is your take on the motive for interaction uh, with human beings, for abduction, for all the rest of it? Why, why do you think they're doing it? Well, I think many people need to realize that there's multiple reasons for multiple civilizations, just the way there's... That's why they crash, too. I think there's different civilizations doing different things, and uh, their craft are imperfect. So uh, it, it's not one thing that's the sort of silver bullet. Aha. Um, uh-huh. But uh, I think the evidence suggests genetic manipulation, genetic uh, understanding, um, influencing people's... Uh, Brains and minds and information being imparted into them uh, is another theme that I've I've seen and I believe. Um, but again, I'm I'm not. Uh, I mean, uh, this is a great question for for David Jacobs. Or, it is. Or, um, uh, it always does seem to come back to the genetic component, Ryan. Uh, it, if you look at what they do or what they are alleged to do. It really does seem to come back to some sort of study, if not manipulation of genetics. All right, hold tight. We're at a break point. And again, we're looking for those of you, perhaps in the military, those of you who have actually been on teams that have done recovery and that sort of work. If we can find you, or if you can find us and get through, you're the ones we're after. This is Coast to Coast AM. Here I am. Ryan Wood is my guest. He's got a book, a new book called Magic Eyes Only. It reviews 74 UFO crashes and subsequent military retrievals. There have been 10 since. So we're talking about exactly that, and we'll be back in a moment. 
Well, all right, Ryan, uh, unless there's something we've not covered in the interview to this moment uh, that we should, we'll continue uh, with the phones. Anything else you want to get in? Um, I, I don't think so. The, um, uh, of course, anybody who knows anything about moon dust or blue fly, those are both related to crash retrievals, I think would be very interesting and uh, we'd welcome any sure. sort of information. Well, that's, that's a very hard shot at any given moment, uh, the sure. odds of anybody getting in, that sort of thing. Uh, but, of course, they can reach you by email. Let's see right. what we get. Richard in Palm Springs, uh, you're on with Ryan. Yeah, hi, Art. Hi. Um, my, my experience took place back in 1964. Uh, apparently there's quite a flap of uh, UFO activity around Vandenberg Air Force Base, and I was a guard on a guided missile about 2 a.m. in the morning, and it was quite foggy. The, the missile was located on the beach, and there was, I knew there was something out there behind the fog. I either heard a noise or something. I'm not sure, but as I went looked in that direction, I noticed a figure of a man coming out of the fog, and it's very unusual, as remote as we were. And he was uh, quite uh, human size, human shape, and actually he was wearing a... Uh, like a military raincoat, so I thought at first it was some military officer that was coming to check up on me or something like that, but mm -hmm. as he advanced towards me, uh, I became quite frightened, and I tried to pull my gun, and my arm was uh, paralyzed. So I backed into my, foolishly backed into my guard shack, and he kept coming at me. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't give you any real details of him because I was so scared, I just squeezed my eyes shut, and push myself back to the uh, to the shack so the next thing I remember was very early in the morning uh, waking up or not waking up but coming to I was inside a circular room with a clear opening in the floor about three feet across and there was a presence next to me and it was like I was getting command don't look over in its direction just look through the opening so I as I looked through the opening, it was foggy, and it was becoming twilight. And the fog started drifting away, and I could look down on a guard post that was about uh, a couple of thousand yards down the road from mine. We, we rotated through these, so I knew them all. And uh, I can watch this truck come up loaded with some supplies, and the guard come out of the gate or his guard shack and uh, then let the guard go inside the the silo with his supplies. Uh, the next thing I did is uh, the only lighting in this room, I could tell you, it was circular. It was about 20 feet across. Uh, it was very dark, and uh, the only light was what came in through this opening, which was, it looked, it didn't look like glass or anything, but there was no breeze or anything coming through it. And I can notice the silhouettes, more or less, of three or four small figures with uh, the uh, large heads like a, a toddler or something like that, disproportionate and probably if they were standing maybe three and a half to four feet tall. Uh, the next thing I know, I'm on the floor of my guard shack with my eyes shut with my head on this being's lap, or I think it was the being, it felt like it, and he's communicating with me somehow. Uh, actually, the feeling was, was one of... Uh, euphoria almost uh, just i just really felt great i could not tell you what was he told me other than i just felt so euphoric that everything 
was okay. I went from sure terror to the euphoria over that uh, span of time. And a loss of time between, say, 2 o'clock when he first encountered the first being and the um, morning. It was morning. It was twilight. So there's about a three-hour loss of time that I can't account for there. And that's pretty much my experience. Uh, yeah, well, that's quite an experience, all right. Yeah. And uh, that's something you might want to explore with somebody who's able to uh, uh, perhaps put you in some sort of hypnotic state and, and take you back. I'd want to know what happened during that period of time. Yeah, I, I just understand. I mean, I listen to your show quite a bit, and I understand that uh, sometimes hypnosis can put ideas in your mind that really weren't there. It, it, it can, uh, but a good, a good hypnotist won't do that, and uh, it is possible to retrieve memories that way. So I'd, I'd, I'd give it a try. Thank you very, very much for the call. It was very interesting. Steve in Trinity Lake, California, you're on with Ryan Wood. Yes, I... Uh... Just wanted to relate. He was uh, my stepmother's uh, father was uh, chief of security for Nevada Atomic Energy Commission for a number of years at Nellis Air Force Base. Right. Uh-huh. And he was telling me uh, he was on vacation in 1972, just after some open heart surgery, and he was in kind of a lucid moment one morning, and he was talking about a number of of things, and uh, he was involved also in the Roswell, uh, New Mexico. Um, crash in the security, some security aspects of it. And uh, in part of his military career was also during World War II, he was in charge of uh, coast of the Pacific Coast uh, troops out of Layetteville retrieving weather balloons. And uh, But anyway, Jesse just said there were a number of things that he could talk about and he'd love to talk about in regards to UFOs, but he couldn't because of his uh, secret oath. And, uh, but he would admit to believing in UFOs and ETs. And, uh, you know, being the caliber of his uh, security clearances and, you know, his life, I was always impressed with that uh, statement. Is he still alive today? Uh, you know, I haven't been in touch with him for a number of years, and I don't think he is because his health was failing. The last time I spoke with him in uh, 89 in uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> and... Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he was very, very, very clear, very direct about, you know, having a firm belief in these things. Okay. Right. All right. Well, thank you very, very much, caller. And should you find him still alive, obviously we'd like to know about it. Uh, Frank in New York City, you're on with Ryan. Ah, good morning, gentlemen. Very interesting show. Yes. Uh, I have a question regarding the master MJ-12 list uh, from uh, Ryan's website. And I have two questions. Uh, one, why isn't uh, Venevar Bush listed as a member of that list since there are about 150 names? And he did have a direct connection with the Army and the Air Force. Uh, and as I said, I also noticed two very interesting people, uh, Clay Shaw, who was implicated, I guess, uh, uh, in the Kennedy assassination, and Lee Harvey Oswald. And I was wondering, what was their connection to the uh, group? Well, the, the master list, I think, has multiple tabs on it, and if you go to uh, scientists, you'll find Van Bush's name. Um, yeah, but he, he should be on the master list, uh, in a sense, you know, for this, because it's directly connected to military. Uh, okay. And I have a question also to ask. Uh, I've also heard that there's another designation called Majesty 12, 
what is the difference between Magic 12, Majestic 12, and Majesty 12? And I'll hang up. Uh, okay. Thanks right. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess I don't have any documents about Majesty 12, and that's the real reason why I haven't really gone there or any witness statements uh, about that. It's been Majestic 12. I, I'm sure the name has changed. Um to Zodiac or something else. But um, that's really why I don't have the, the majesty thing. And then the, um, the the linkages of Clay Shaw was, um, I believe he was one of the intelligence officers that was interviewed some people in the Murray Island uh, crash uh, case. So that's why his name was on the uh, on the list. Um, and as far as Lee Harvey Oswald goes, I have to go look at it again. It's a big name. It people attracts people's attention, and if it's not a clear linkage, I had to take it off. But m- most of it was created from copiously going through all the documents I have and seeing all the to's and from's and all the names that were in the document. Okay, Ryan, out of the country to Mexico. Jim, you're on the air with Ryan Wood. Yeah, I was uh, wanted to tell about, uh, uh, I'm sure it was a, a living entity because it was moving. Uh, you know, it was moving across the ground. There's no doubt about it. Where and when? What, what are you talking about, Jim? This was, well, okay, this was uh, my patio. Uh, it was glass. Uh, some, it was brown glass from a broken bottle or something. And uh, I picked it up, and I set it over in, in front of me where I was sitting. So I, I mean, I didn't know it right away that it was uh, – I, mean, I thought I was, my eyes were deceiving me. Um, a few minutes later, a piece of gla- another piece of glass was moving in the same direction, in the same path as the other one. I mean, this, is, this was just too much for me. Uh, I picked that one up, examined it carefully. It didn't look anything unusual at all. Um, but I put it next to the other one, and I was sitting there looking at them and thinking about it. Another piece of glass comes the same way, the same path, and I let it keep going. Just moving all on its own. It's basically, uh, it, uh, I can't say if it, was, it wasn't above the, uh, the ground. It, was, uh, it, it appeared to be touching the ground, but gliding, mm. if you will. Uh, small piece of glass, no bigger than, a, than three-quarters of an inch. When did this occur, Jim? This was about three months ago. Uh-huh. And how did it how did it end? Um, what's the end of the story? I mean, you've got pieces of glass floating along the. Uh, a, cu- and a couple of more came, uh, you know, after minutes later, you know, one at a time, zip by at a fairly uh, uh, low rate of speed. I would say, you know, half of walking speed. Uh, the, uh, the, the 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 most interesting part is that. Uh, after a while, I, I stepped out of the room. I came back, and the two pieces of glass that I had set in front of me were gone. Okay, I have no idea what to make of this. Uh... Well, you know that silicon is the second element that, can, that could theoretically be a, be a base for a form of life. Right. You know, carbon is one. There's a this science fiction story about these pyramids made of silicon no, that's or right. something. Yes. You know, and you would expect that if silicon was a form of life, it would move extremely slowly. You know, like one inch every hundred years or something like that. So you're thinking you might have uh, actually observed a form of life. 
Well, I I, uh, I do think so. I mean, uh, uh, I can't make anything else out of it. Do you still do you still have uh, any of these pieces? Well, I, I I found some glass that was uh, looked about the same in another part of the house later on, and I assume it might be. But you know, it was from broken glass in the patio, and uh, you know, there's broken glass around. You know, you couldn't really tell. Uh, if it was exactly the same or not. In fact, my suspicion was is that it, it was slightly different, but it looked approximately the same, and that it, uh, you know, was uh, was not the same, but maybe meant to look the same. I'm not All right, sure. well, that certainly is a weird story. Uh, I have no idea what to make of that one. Uh, let's go to Bill in Van Nuys, California. You're on with Ryan Wood. Hello, Art and uh, Ryan. Uh, nice to talk to you both. I'm very reluctant to talk about this. I never spoke on the air, and I'm not usually calling in on programs. But I have been a long time abductee. Unfortunately, it's not a good thing. And the only reason I called in is because I appreciate your work, and I know that one of your guests spoke about maybe this is just imaginations. People are dreaming. I thought that too when I was younger, until October or November of 1974, when we observed three of us observed a craft going over our heads. And it was going so slow, we thought the aircraft was ready to crash, and we waited for the crash. We, I saw the, the silver bottom of it as it was going overhead, and it made like an oscillating, like humming noise, like a And I thought, what, what is it? Anyways, later on, we were standing around a fire, you know, at night, and we, someone had looked out in the woods, and we seen red, blue, and white lights going around. And someone said, what is that? And they said, well, it's probably a house with Christmas decorations. And I said to him, I said, do you ever see Christmas decorations that have lights going around like that? So we walked down to the woods to see what it was. And we walked up on a, a UFO on the ground with two grays standing in front of it. Six of us walked up within 40 feet, maybe 40 or 50 feet. And it was lit from behind. So you could see that these, you could see them perfectly. And one of them had a weapon in his hand. And this sounds like such a crazy story. Even I know what happened. I, I can't hardly believe it myself. And we didn't know what to do. We were just standing there, and all of a sudden, one started to move, and the other one started to move the same way, like they were in chain step, like military. And the one on one of them that had a weapon, it looked like a kind of a grayish, I mean like a bluish weapon with little rings around it. He pointed it at us, but he started to point it at, at us, and everyone started to run. We're running through the trees. We're ready to get our eyes poked out. We don't care. We're trying to get away from this thing. And all of a sudden, I was hit in the back of the head with something, I assumed from that gun, whatever it was, and something told me you just ran into a tree. And later on, I thought, well, if I get hit in the back of the head, how do I run into a tree and knock myself out? So I assumed I just jumped right up, and I looked, and all five people were gone. They were already right running out into the street where the street light was. So I, I just jumped up and ran out there, and they said, where have, you, where have you been for the last two hours? I said, what are you talking about? I just got up. I couldn't figure out how they were already out of the woods. And it's just, it, it really enforced my, my, know, my knowing that this does happen. This is real. Well, Bill, that, that was a multiple encounter. Did you report this to anybody? Well, who do you, uh, who do you report it to? You call the police, they say you're nuts. Who's going to believe it? I don't even like talking about it now. It's not something that, even my closest friends, I've told a couple close friends I've known all my life, and they know me, and they still kind of look at me like, they really don't know what to think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, the MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, would love to hear a report, and somebody would be very uh, 
sympathetic, responsible, and, and mature about it. Yeah, particularly in a multiple witness situation like that or a multiple encounter situation like that, I, I would say, uh, as Ryan just suggested, uh, go to MUFON, report it. Uh, Jat in Texas, uh, you're on the air with Ryan Wood. Hi. Hi, hi, Art. I've got an uh, encounter with the space baby thrown in that I'd like to share with you. Uh, about 13 years ago, um, I lived in Dallas, Texas, and my wife and I were asleep one night. And I heard a uh, oscillating low decibel noise getting closer, sounding like it getting closer. We were sleeping. That's what woke me up. I'm kind of a light sleeper. And I remember a blue light filled the room. It was a, a, a thick light, almost like being in a fog. And then, then that's all I remember about that part. And then I remember being in my, I've got two boys. They were three and five at the time. I'm 50 years old now. And I remember with, being with my wife playing with a child that that wasn't really it wasn't either of them the, in in one of them's bed in their bedroom and then i remember hearing that low frequency oscillating sound coming and i remember shaking uncontrollably with fear the next thing i remember was lying in my bed and all of a sudden i don't i don't know what woke me up but i i set Straight up in my bed, my wife was laying asleep next to me, and bounding up on the bed was a child that, and and I said, "Oh, Nathan, it's you." And I laid back down again, went to sleep. But I remember it wasn't Nathan. The the child had a, a bigger head, kind of an almond shaped head, but he, he looked real similar to my my uh, my two year old who was. That's that's born. really an odd story, Jad. Listen, I I'm gonna have to cut you off. I'm terribly sorry. We're out of time. Ryan, um, again, the odds of anybody um, getting through, we had several very, very interesting calls, but in terms of getting uh, a military person, somebody who's been on a crash retrieval, for example, which is I know exactly what you want, um, are pretty slim in any given show. So, Sure, I understand. Your website's up there. The email is available by all means, folks. Contact Ryan if you're ready to talk. Ryan, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Wish we had more time. Thanks, Art. Thank you, my friend, and good night. Good night. All right, folks, uh, that's it for this night and this weekend. Tomorrow night, uh, George will pick up the gauntlet and run with it until next weekend. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you all a good night.